where the children of tomorrow dream away in the wind of change. Magic of the moment on a glory night where the children of tomorrow dream away. Well, well, well. It seems that today is the 19th of July and it's time we spill some tea. Well, it's not new tea. It's old tea. It's tea that I've talked about before. And um, thank goodness people are recording history because we will write it. One of my favorite, favorite, I want to say memes that I created on my Instagram was President Trump sitting in Churchill's chair and said, history will be kind to me because I'll be writing it. And that's the thing. We will be documented. We are documenting. And, and, and well, one mode of documentation is on torysaid.com. I urge you to look up the name Bolton. He is the only person that I've said is one of the scariest people. So I've talked about this before. And a lot of people would say, oh, my gosh, that's like horrific. But you'll see that it's going on all over the world. And the question is why? So first off, I'd like to apologize for the delay. Um, I didn't sleep until really late last night, and I actually overslept. I missed my morning calls. Um, I actually enjoyed the sleep. I needed it, I think. Um, and the only reason I woke up was because of uh, my child <laughs> wondering where I was because I was you know, not responsive, at least to say, stop spamming me. So my phone was dead, obviously, watching a movie while I sleep on my phone. So it was one of those days. So I was delayed. So I had phone calls to make and uh, that were pretty important. And the good thing is, is that the very important one that I missed was intentionally delayed because it needed to be uh, private rather than a conference call. So, you know, that kind of uh, uh, worked different. But um, for those of you that remember, you remember that... Um, I uh, have said that the only person that I find scary is Bolton. And because he believes that whatever he's doing is a good thing. And he said things that I've said that you would probably never hear come out of his mouth. So we're going to cover that today. We're going to spill some tea, but that'll be at the last segment. Right now, I'm going to show you two things. One. What is really going on with that Ukraine plane? Don't listen to the bullshit. Oh, Biden, Ukraine plane, oh, it was shot down Russia. Nope, 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 nope. I'm going to tell you what's going on. And I'm going to show you what's going on. And you understand what's going on. But in the meantime, you know, uh, Siliza is distracting us because UFOs are becoming more important to Congress right now. And, you know... A very smart person today on one of my calls said, you know, they own everything. They own the media. They own the House. They own the Senate. They own everything. They even own the people that pretend that they're on the right. And what was interesting is, is that someone so smart and such a genius to recognize that 
There is indeed a conspiracy, but it's not a conspiracy theory, an actual conspiracy. Shook me to the core because, you know, I didn't know a few things about the other person and, and this is why we mesh. I didn't know some information about this one person and was like, damn, really? Ding. Wow. So this is why we get it. And we were talking about the vaccine at that point and, you know, the notion of the push and why it had to be this way. And it's a good thing that those that were listening, that were paying attention, escaped that horror. And it's, that's a topic that we're going to talk about first later, later, later. But for now, let's just see what they're distracting us with. I mean, they're going to pull everything. Marburg's war, maybe even trigger some civil unrest and aliens. Why not? Let's just throw that into the mix. Until my book is due. I'm not stressed out. (laughs) Earlier this month, the U.S. House did something very interesting. They passed, as part of a much broader bill, a provision that would encourage more sharing of reports of sightings and encounters with unidentified aerial phenomena, a.k.a. UFOs. The measure also offered total amnesty to any past or current military member who offers up information about UFO, I mean UAPs, that's unidentified aerial phenomenon. That's what we call them now, UAPs. Wisconsin Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher, who helped push the provision along with Arizona Democratic Rep. Ruben Gallego, said that his, quote, primary interest is to ensure that our military and intelligence community are armed with the best possible information, capital, and scientific resources to defeat our enemies and maintain military and technology superiority, end quote. The measure and the larger bill now heads to the Senate, which has to approve it before President Joe Biden can sign it into law. So nothing's done just yet. Learned that lesson over the years. But the House's decision to make the reporting of UAP sightings much easier and much less stigmatized is the latest in a series of moves that suggests that Congress is finally taking the issue of crafts of unknown origins more seriously. The rethinking of our approach to UAPs actually began in earnest in April 2020. That's when the Pentagon released three short videos documenting UAPs in flight. As CNN wrote at the time of those videos, quote, the videos show what appear to be unidentified flying objects rapidly moving while recorded by infrared cameras. Two of the videos contain service members reacting in awe at how quickly the objects are moving. One voice speculates that it could be a drone, end quote. Then last summer, the U.S. intelligence community issued an unclassified report to Congress on UAPs that had a number of eye-popping revelations. Among those, there were 144 UAP sightings or incidents between 2004 and 2021. And that number is probably artificially low because of the stigma associated with reporting UAPs in the past. And in 18 incidents, quote, observers reported unusual UAP movement patterns or flight characteristics. Some UAP appear to remain stationary in winds aloft, move against the wind, maneuver abruptly, or move at considerable speed without discernible means of propulsion, end quote, which is really, really interesting. In May, Congress held its first hearing dedicated to UAPs in more than five decades. Here's Indiana Congressman Andre Carson, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee's Counterterrorism, Counterintelligence, and Counterproliferation Subcommittee, and what he said at the time. For too long, 
The stigma associated with UAPs has gotten in the way of good intelligence analysis. Pilots avoided reporting or were laughed at when they did. DOD officials relegated the issue to the back room or swept it under the rug entirely, fearful of a skeptical national security community. Today, we know better. UAPs are unexplained, it's true, but they are real. They need to be investigated, and many threats they pose need to be mitigated. The seriousness with which Congress is now taking UAPs represents a massive shift from even a decade or two ago when Harry Reid, the powerful Democratic senator from Nevada, was a lone voice insisting that attention must be paid to them. Reid had advocated for the creation of the secretive Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, AATIP, which was housed within the broader Department of Defense. In 2019, Reid defended the $22 million he had earmarked for AA tip over his time in the Senate, telling Nevada Newsmakers, which is a show in the state, this about studying UAPs. You know that China's doing it. We know that Russia, which is led by uh, someone who was head of the KGB, you know they're doing it. And so we better take a look at it too. We got a volume of research that was done and I said, put it out to bid and $22 million worth of research. And it was very interesting uh, because it showed that not two people, four people, six people, 20 people, but hundreds and hundreds of people have seen these things, sometimes all at the same time. Earlier that same year, Reed was blunt about his interest on Nevada Public Radio. I personally don't know if, uh, if there were exists um, little green men, other places. I kind of doubt that. But I do believe that the information we have indicates that we should do a lot more study. Reed died in late 2021 before he could see the rest of Congress take action on the mystery and potential threat these UAPs represent. But Congress has clearly woken up to the fact that UAPs aren't really about aliens necessarily but more about the national security threat posed by objects flying in our airspace that we can neither identify nor explain, which is progress. And that is the point. We make new point episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Check them all out. So aliens, aliens are coming to the forefront, but in order to understand where I'm going with this, I need you guys to kind of um, understand what steganography means. Right. And in order to do that, I guess we should um, ask the NSA about it. But I want to tell you in steganography, malicious actors, um, well, steganography in itself, by definition, is a hiding a secret message. Uh, you know, in, in tech terms, it would be encryption, right? Or whatever. Uh, but um, there's, you know, ways how you target people. It's like um, uh, steganography is better than cryptography in the sense that you know the secret message is somewhere and the content is concealed. That's how cryptography is, right? Because you know the message, which is, hey, want a coffee is encrypted and you know it's there. But in steganography, the secret message can't be seen. Like you don't know where it is. And so uh, using encryption digitally, but also using steganographic methods as well, uh, you know, uh, kind of makes it a, a two-prong hit, I would say. So um, the NSA has a great uh, video introduction to steganography. 
But we're going to skip to a few because I'm going to show you what that means, um, uh, what actual steganography means, because uh, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating uh, because I'm going to show you steganography live, steganography about me live. Uh, so that way you could see it. I mean, best example is a personal one, right? Hey, look, don't put your fingers in the socket because look what happened to me. Well, here's fingers in the socket for you to take a look at. And what's incredible is that they don't even try to hide it. Now, um, for example, so yesterday, all of you know, I made the ballot for all those that laughed because I was dismissed from the GOP ballot. Uh, ha ha. I knew that was going to happen. My campaign manager knew this. He knew that. I told him that. And so, you know, to make it clear as a threat, I was like, we need the signatures in 10 days when I first filed just to fucking piss them off because people to get a thousand valid signatures will be there for a year. Right. And so we did that and they couldn't allow me to be on the GOP primary ballot, which was perfect. See how God works. Why? They actually broke the law. The Supreme Court actually said, oh, well, you know, there's version of facts. Uh, Totally disregarding the fact that there were violations of law. So what happened was I, I filed as an independent. Now in the state of Ohio, there's a sore loser clause. But in order for me to be a sore loser, I'd have to be registered as a Republican. And the way you register as a Republican is when you vote in the primary. Well, guess what? I never voted in a primary. So technically, I'm not a Republican because I've only voted in Ohio in a general election. So if you guys remember, for those of you that were on my local stream, the day that I went to put in my documentation, they gave me a trick question. Do you guys remember that? that? I had four attorneys all sweating and I was like, do I have to answer this question? Like, what's the right answer? This is a trick question where they were asking me to identify myself. So for those of you that were on the stream, uh, you, um, you um, saw it in action. Where I was like, wait a minute, this is optional. I don't have to answer this question. Great. And I, and I was like, fuck it. Well, here's what happened. I filed my paperwork. And then after that, we had our primary, but I couldn't vote in the primary. This is the way God works. And I was angry because I was on an airplane and I was flying somewhere. And I was like, this is where God works. Because I was actually going to go to the primary, but I didn't. I didn't because I was busy and I was flying. So remember, because I had to go to Tennessee for my lawsuit. So, whoa, look at the way God works. And then the Secretary of State's office called my campaign and told them she has to go to her county and register as an independent. Now, I said to my campaign manager, why would the Secretary of State call you and give you advice? They want me to do that. So guess what? I'm not fucking doing it. Now, when the article went out claiming that no independent made the ballot except for me, depending if someone's going to contest it, and please, go ahead. Let's play. I like to dance. Make it difficult because then it makes everything better. You know, when you sweat, it feels so much better when you achieve it. But what happened was, if you actually look at the article, uh, they asked questions. And they said, well, you know, if uh, Neil Peterson would have won, which was the pastor running for governor, then... Um, he would have been disqualified because he voted in the primary. You see how that works? Well, if this person would have, then this, this, this. See, I'm an expert at game theory, but I do have blind spots. And where I have blind spots, God comes in and creates situations where 
you know, it avoids me any pain. He's crushing every single one of my enemies. Wah. So it was fantastic because I would have voted and it was great that I didn't because I was flying. So I was like, whatever. So they got stuck. They can't disqualify me because I didn't, did, you know, nominate my designation. I self-proclaim as a Republican and I can self-proclaim as a piece of furniture. If it's not on a document and I haven't voted in a primary, then I'm not what you say. So no sore loser clause. And I didn't make the primary, but I'm not a Republican on paper. So ah, jokes on you. So he was really big mad that he had to do that. And the thing that they're complaining about is that Republicans are not happy with Frank LaRose. And so uh, wait till National Whistleblower Day. That shit's going to be fun. So, um, you know, again, all of this happened because of my campaign team. And obviously none of it would have happened if it wasn't for God. He's done all of it. He's guided me in every single step. I kid you not. I would have messed that up. But apparently the flights were cheaper, you know, because I also had to pay for my attorney's flights. Right. So I had to find cheaper flights because, you know, I'm paying his hotel, his flights and mine. So it, it happened the way it happened. <laughs> so funny. So funny. So funny. So in order to do that, <clears throat> So anyway, so when that report came out, some person that self-identifies as press or whatever, named Karen, very fitting name, uh, decided to post it on Twitter tagging the Democrat uh, candidate, right? And so uh, the Democrat candidate was tagged. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Why is she tagging her? I mean, she's, she's like in a basement somewhere. She hasn't even come out for air. Um, and she doesn't have to because it's just a blue ticket and they just say, Hey, all the idiots are just going to vote blue. The problem is, is that I'm not on any ticket and the left kind of likes me and my campaigning next month will be all over those areas in Columbus and Cleveland that people don't walk into, but I do remember I did poll watching in East Cleveland. I have no fear because God has got me. So so then new steganography came. So I was on a phone call today talking about uh, some stuff. And I was looking at something and I realized that, oh, damn, they just put a hit on me. What, Tori? Wait. And I'll explain it to you. So it's really weird, too. So I'm going to explain it to you by showing you a little bit of this NSA video. And then we're going to watch a movie recap. Okay. And then I'll show you how they locked it in. So let's go with the introduction. Just uh, the first few minutes. Let's go. This is from the NSA, by the way. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wilcox. I'm the Director of Education at the National Cryptologic Museum at the National Security Agency. And today... We are talking about steganography, hidden in history. Steganography is the art of hiding a message, keep it away from prying eyes. It doesn't need to be encrypted. It doesn't need to be altered. It's just hiding it so others can't see it. And steganography is an ancient tool. It was used uh, millennia ago, and the ancient Greek historian Herodotus told about ancient rulers who used methods to hide a message as it was being sent out. And one of those ancient rulers was one named Demaricus. And he learned that the Persians were going to be invading Spartan. So he needed to warn the Spartans. In order to do that, he used 
an ordinary wax writing tablet. He scraped off the wax, wrote the message on the wood behind it, and then reapplied the wax. And then as the courier was taking it to Sparta, if he got stopped, then the guards would look at that and it would just be a normal blank writing tablet and they wouldn't think anything of it. When they got to Sparta, the Spartan leaders scraped off the wax, saw the message, and knew that the Persians were attacking. At that point, Leonidas gathered 300 of his best men and took them up to the mountain pass at Thermopylae, hoping to stop the Persians from coming through. Herodotus told about another very unique way of sending a message. Again, it involved avoiding the Persians. This time, it was Hystasius, and he wanted to get the Persians out of the area that he was in, and he was asking his brother-in-law for assistance. Now, to send this secret message, he shaved the hair off of his favorite slit servant and then tattooed the message on his scalp, let the hair grow back, and then sent the servant on his way. When he got where he was going, the brother-in-law shaved his head and saw the message. Not the fastest way to send a message, but it is very well hidden. Now, invisible ink is another form of a stenographic method, and it dates back centuries. All right, all right. So, now let's get into a movie, right? And you're going to be like, what is this all about? Wait, no, you need to see the movie, and then we need to see, oh, that was explanatory, and I urge you guys to watch this movie. And all of you, in your mind, I want you to think of this. Who's Mari? Mari. Who is Mari in the movie? In the, in the opening scenes of the movie, we are introduced to our two lead characters, Dominica, Igorova, and Nate Nash. The setting is modern-day Russia. Dominica is listening to music, while Nate is listening to a coded recording. As Nate decrypts the code and removes a weapon, from underneath his desk, Dominica arrives at the theater and begins to apply makeup. Dominica is a famous ballerina, and as she begins to perform, we see Nate Nash, a CIA agent, enter the park to meet his Russian mole, codenamed Marble. The classical music, playing over the scenes intensifies as does the situation for our two leads. Nate is confronted by the police and fires a gun to create a distraction from his mole. He is chased through town, where he manages to make it to the U.S. Embassy. Dominica is lifted and spun through the air by her leading man, but as he goes to put her down, he drops her and she lands badly. Nate drops to the floor and surrender at the same time as Dominica falls and breaks her ankle. Dominica's uncle, Ivan, who is the deputy director of the SVR, comes to visit and offers her a job working with him. He also gives her photographs of her lead man kissing the girl who replaced Dominica in the ballet. Dominica understands that she was dropped on purpose and goes to confront the pair. She walks into the theater to find the two ballet leads having sex in the bathroom. She beats them both violently with her walking stick then leaves. When she returns home, her mother is on the floor unable to get up and it becomes clear to Dominica that she will have to take her uncle's job if she wishes to maintain good care for her mother. We see Dominica getting dressed up as her uncle's voice relays instructions. She is tasked with seducing Dmitry Ustinov for information, but when they go to his room he begins to rape her. As this is happening another SBR agent enters the room and kills Dimitri, strangling him with a piece of wire. Dimitri's blood drips onto Dominica who is taken away by the SBR agent. Dominica is given two choices, train as an agent or be killed for witnessing the murder of Dimitri. Dominica is sent to state school for to train as a Red Sparrow. Here she meets the matron who tells her that if she cannot be of service to her state, she will put a bullet through her head. Teaching begins and the matron calls Dominica, along with a boy named Victor, to the front of the class and tells them to strip. Victor complies, but Dominica refuses. Meanwhile, Nate is back in Washington for his debrief where he is suspended from foreign assignments. Nate argues that he has been with Marble for three years and Marble will refuse to work with anyone else. 
Dominica's training continues with activities such as shooting, lockpicking, and learning how different substances can be used and traced. Dominico excels. Nate is in a meeting with the CIA. He tells them that he has a tail, which makes him believe Marble is still alive. As the CIA have been unable to establish contact with Marble, they give Nate one final assignment, to meet Marble in Budapest and get him to communicate via one of the other agents. At State School 4, Matron tells the class the purpose of a Red Sparrow. Every human being is a puzzle with a missing piece. A Red Sparrow must establish the real need of the other person and become that missing piece. The students are assigned returning soldiers and told to take care of their needs. Dominica picks a quiet boy and takes him to her room. Later when she is showering, a fellow Sparrow walks in and tries to rape her. She rips off the shower handle and beats him with it. Dominica's uncle, Ivan, is in a meeting with the senior members of the SBR including General Korchmoy to discuss Nate. They are aware that Nate will be trying to establish contact with their mole and they are keen to send in another agent to establish the mole's identity. Though Dominica has caused friction with the matron due to her continued refusal to obey orders, she is given the assignment in Budapest. She must get close to Nate, establish trust and find the mole. Dominica moves into an apartment alongside another agent called Marta. She is quick to establish contact with Nate, but he is quick to realize that she is a Russian agent. Dominica inspects Marta's room and discovers that. She is assigned to buy classified intelligence from a senior U.S. staff member, Stephanie Boucher. Nate has invited Dominica to dinner, but she doesn't show, instead waiting outside for him to leave. She then follows him back to his apartment and gets him to talk about the incident in the park that we witnessed at the beginning of the movie. Dominica is contacted by Ivan. She tells him that she is building trust with Nate and has extracted information about the night in the park. When Ivan pushes her, asking why she is not working more quickly, Dominica says that she is helping Marta with her assignment when Dominica returns to her apartment. Marta has been brutally murdered for sharing the details of her assignment and Dominica is threatened with the same if she fails to deliver results. Dominica goes to Nate and tells him everything. He offers her a position working for the CIA and tells her that he would never treat her how her uncle does. Dominica passes a lie detector given by the CIA and takes up their first assignment to meet with Miss Boucher and swap the intelligence for fake disks to give to the Russians. She completes this task, but as she leaves the hotel she is captured by the Russians and taken home. Here she is tortured. We see her repeatedly asked if she gave Miss Boucher to the Americans. The first time she says no she is stripped naked, locked in a room with her hands tied to the ceiling. Water pours down on her and there are blasts of intensely heavy metal music. The second time Dominica says no she is beaten with a hammer across her legs, arms, and finally her head. The final time Dominica says that she did not give Miss Boucher to the Americans, she is threatened with a gun, but when the trigger is pulled it becomes clear it wasn't loaded. Ivan enters the room to talk to Dominica. He tells her that he can only provide so much protection for her. She responds by telling her uncle that this was all part of her strategy. She had to make the Americans believe her credibility. She needed to give Nate a reason to believe her and now that she has been tortured, Nate will have total trust in her. Dominica asks her uncle to let her go back and prove that she can get the job done efficiently. At this point we are left to wonder whose side she is really on. Upon Dominica's return to Budapest, she is reunited with Nate, they passionately embrace and the care they have for each other seems to be genuine. However, in the middle of the night, Dominica awakes to find that Nate is no longer asleep next to her. She walks out into the kitchen where she sees Nate tied to a chair an SBR agent slowly torturing him. At first we see the shock on Dominica's face, but she knows what she must do and we soon see the distant look return to her eyes. She offers to help extract information from Nate by peeling off slices of his skin. Nate yells out in pain but Dominica continues. As the trust builds between Dominica and the SBR agent, he lets down his guard just long enough for Dominica to attack him and free Nate. The two of them work together to bring down the Russian, but not without sustaining wounds and injuries themselves. As Dominica recovers in hospital it looks like it is all over for her. She has blown her cover to the Russians by saving Nate's life and she has no further cards to play. 
General Korchmoy comes to talk to her, a man who we have seen to be steadfast and intimidating throughout the movie. Just as all hope is lost, Korchmoy makes the shocking confession that it is he who is the mole. Korchmoy is impressed by Dominica's work and dedication and wants her to give him up in order to gain the full trust of the Russians. She can then take over his role by giving Russian intelligence to the USA. Korchmoy accepts his fate and awaits the arrival of the Russians to impose his imminent death. A team of Russians and Americans gather on the airfield to trade moles. Nate holds onto Dominica's arm and asks how she was able to give up the mole so easily. He is disappointed in her decision. We see Marble step out of the helicopter with a bag over his head. Nate continues to express his dismay by telling Dominica that the Russians will never let them take Marble alive. She says that one day he will understand what she has done. But Nate reiterates that he will not, because he is not in the habit of throwing people away. Dominica begins to move towards the Russians, Marble towards the Americans. All that is left is for Nate to confirm the mole's identity. The bag is lifted and in a huge final twist we see that the man Dominica has named as the mole is not Korchmoy, but is in fact her uncle, Ivan. In a sequence of flashbacks we see that Dominica has worked for a long time to implicate her uncle. Removing a glass from Nate's apartment and placing it in Ivan's and opening a bank account in Ivan's name into which she got the CIA to transfer money. There is a look of resignation in Ivan's eyes and as he passes Dominica he says you have killed me. Her response to him is didn't I do well uncle. They walk past each other but as Ivan approaches the Americans he is shot dead. The Russians grab Dominica who is in shock and push her into the helicopter. She is later receiving a medal of honor from the Russians. Korchmoy gives her a nod as everyone applauds. Dominica returns to looking after her mother. She receives a phone call. There is no voice, only the sound of the classical ballet music, which makes her smile. Thanks for watching. So spy games, flipping people, spy games, spy games, right? You be like, what does that mean? Well, now let me introduce you to <sighs> Tamari. You're going to be like, what? Hold on. I did tell you that I worked on some really weird projects. I've also told you that I've translated green rocks. And I've also told you other things that, you know, throughout time, little tidbits. You know, one day that story will be told, but they now are on full-blown panic. And I'll show it to you because you're going to get it now. I mean, best example is a personal example. Now, enjoy. To examine the history of one of my favorite, favorite cities from the Bronze Age. Not Babylon or Uruk, but Mari. The story of Mari really starts with the beginning of Sumerian civilization itself. It's mentioned in the Sumerian king list as being the 10th city after the legendary Great Flood to rule over the land of Sumer. In Mari, Anbu became king and ruled for 30 years. Anba, the son of Anbu, reigned for 17 years. Bazi, the leather worker, reigned for 30 years. Zizi, the fuller, reigned for 20 years. Limir, the anointed priest, reigned for 30 years. Sharum Eter reigned for 9 years. In sum, 6 kings reigned for 136 years. Then Mari was defeated and the kingship taken to Kish. We have here a very interesting group of rulers, including a leather worker and someone who was an anointed priest. However, there has of now 
not been any archaeological evidence to corroborate the existence of such a dynasty. So, nothing about these kings can be confirmed, including their very existence. Archaeologists, though, have uncovered a lot of artifacts beneath the sands of Mari, dating to the period of Mesopotamian history known as the Early Dynastic Period, roughly between 2900 to 2334 BC. Situated along the Euphrates River in what's today the eastern edge of Syria, the early layout of Mari was circular, with its city walls being surrounded by a dike to protect it from the river's floodwaters. Remains of private houses and a marketplace surrounding what appears to have been the city's main square were uncovered and dated to the early dynastic period, along with the palace and temples dedicated to the goddess Ishtar. Due to the fertile farmland surrounding it, as well as its prime location along the main trade routes between the prosperous cities of Sumer and those of the Levant further to the west, by around 2500 BC, Mari became the region's main commercial hub, and due to this, quite wealthy. Objects made of gold, silver, bronze, textiles, wheat, barley, precious stones, and raw materials such as copper and tin, timber and pottery, really anything that was of value passed through Mari's streets to be sold in the city or on their way to destinations far beyond. Of course, when you become too prosperous, others seem to notice and covet what you have. The Akkadian king, Sargon of Akkad, also known as Sargon the Great, was one such person. Though Mari would have been a prize for any king, holding it doesn't seem to have been easy for him or his successors, since the archaeological record indicates that the city suffered a violent period of destruction sometime between 2300 to 2250 BC. Mari's location, though, was too strategically important, and so the city seems to have been quickly rebuilt and put under the authority of an Akkadian military governor. When the Akkadian Empire began to disintegrate around 2200 BC, the descendants of this governor founded what became known as the Shakanaku dynasty. Its kings, of which little is known, presided over the city as an independent city-state until it was eventually taken over by the Neo-Sumerian kings of the Third Dynasty of Ur. They may have left the Shakanakus in power to rule as their vassals. Like previous kings, the rulers of the Neo-Sumerian dynasty recognized Mari's importance and spent lavishly on building up the city. We see during this time the renovation and expansion of many temple complexes, as well as new administrative buildings and stronger fortifications being laid throughout the city. In addition, a new palace was constructed on top of the ruins of the older one, but in a new style that would be similar to those that we eventually see in later periods of Babylonian and Assyrian history. The palace was much larger than the previous one and had multiple rooms that were grouped around open courts, including a large courtyard known as the Court of the Palm due to the numerous palm trees planted there. The palace seems to have been the center of life in Mari during the Neo-Sumerian period and even afterward, since it's clear that it was renovated and expanded several times, with new rooms added that were used as administrative offices, archives, and a scribal school. 
Eventually, the later Neo-Sumerian kings lost their grip on power between the years 2020 to 2004 BC, with many of the cities once under their control, including Mari, declaring their independence or being taken over by different Amorite tribal chieftains and warlords. We don't know exactly how the Shakonaku dynasty came to an end, but without the backing of the Neo-Sumerian state, it must have succumbed to the will of the various warlords of the Amorite tribes passing through the region around Mari. Though there may have been others ruling the city after the Shakanakus, the first Amorite dynasty that we know of in Mari began with a king named Yadun Lim around 1810 BC. He's best known for fighting with his neighbors, specifically the rival Amorite kings of Aleppo in the west and Shamshi Adad in the east. Yadun Lim was able to exercise his authority over much of the land around Mari, including the cities of Turka and Tutul. He's also famous for leading an expedition to Lebanon for the purpose of obtaining timber for his newly renovated palace. At first, things between Yadun Lim and the neighboring kingdom of Yamhad, whose capital was the city of Aleppo, were going well. Eventually, though, Yamhad's ruler, Sumuepa, grew angry with him for forming an alliance with his rival, the king of Eshnuna. As punishment, he supported the rebellions of several Yamanite tribes living on land claimed by Mari. The squabbling between the two kingdoms went on until Yadun Lim's son and successor, Sumu Yaman, came to power and tried to fix relations with Yamhad. But within just two years, he was assassinated under mysterious circumstances. This paved the way for Shamshi Adad and the Kingdom of Upper Mesopotamia to attack and annex Mari into his growing empire. Shamshi Adad not only added to Mari's great palace, but also installed his rather incompetent son, Yasma Adu, as viceroy of the city. There are several letters between Yasma Adu and his father outlining the latter's displeasure with his son. One of them reads, I gave you this city. Why do you ask me to decide this matter? If you are able to hold this city, hold it. If you are not, there are many others who have enough energy to hold it. I will not abandon my house to administer yours. A real man must administer his own house. For eight years, Yasma Adu held his position as the viceroy of Mari. Then, in 1775 BC, his capable and charismatic father, Shamshi Adad, died. Within a year, Yesma Adu was overthrown by a prince claiming to be a descendant of Yadun Lim. His name was Zimri Lim. For the next 13 years, Zimri Lim reigned over what may have been the most magnificent period in Mari's history. By pacifying the Yemenite tribes and maintaining strong alliances with his neighbors, including Hammurabi of Babylon, Zimri Lim's Mari once again prospered from the commerce and trade routes that flowed through its territory. Like his predecessors, he also renovated and expanded Mari's great palace to include as many as 300 rooms. Under Zimri Lim, Mari had, along with Yamhad, Babylon, Eshnuna, and Larsa, become one of the most prosperous and powerful kingdoms in Mesopotamia. 
In this web of kingdoms and alliances, Mari was most closely aligned with Yarim Lim of Yamhad and Hammurabi of Babylon. However, by the mid-1760s BC, Hammurabi's growth in power and influence threatened Zimri Lim, who thought that his Babylonian ally would one day become his rival. He ended up being right. When Hammurabi requested Zimri Lim to help him conquer the kingdom of Larsa, the king of Mari basically ignored him. In the end, it didn't really matter, because in 1763 BC, Hammurabi was able to take Larsa and depose its king, Rim Sin. The very next year, he turned his gaze towards Mari. Using the excuse that Zimri Lim had failed to be an equal partner within their alliance and had basically betrayed him, the now much more powerful Hammurabi led his troops into Mari and took over the city. The Babylonians remained there for several months and plundered the great palace that Zimri Lim had just renovated. Then, Hammurabi ordered the city to be set on fire, with Mari's people being forced to relocate elsewhere. It's believed that Zimri Lim was in neighboring Yamhad at the time, though we never really find out ultimately what happened to him. Just why Hammurabi would have committed this seemingly senseless act of destruction has baffled scholars for decades. After all, Mari, with its location on the principal trade routes between Hammurabi's expanding Babylonian empire and the Levant, would have been an extremely valuable asset. It's possible, though, that Hammurabi feared that he wouldn't be able to hold the city, and that eventually, Zimri Lim might return with the backing of Yarim Lim of Yamhad to take it from him. This would have also created a new, hostile kingdom on his northwestern border. Whatever the reason, Hammurabi's destruction of Mari proved to be the fatal blow in the city's glorious history. Mari never recovered and eventually succumbed to the sands of time. Luckily for us, many of the 22,000 cuneiform tablets from Mari's extensive archives have survived. These consist of both state and private archives that include administrative documents, legal texts, and letters sent to foreign rulers and government officials. With documents extending as far back as the mid-3rd millennium BC, these archives are truly a treasure trove of information about this most amazing period of ancient history, without which many of the stories of Mari's kings, including Yadun and Zimri Lim, would be lost to us. So, I hope that you enjoyed this quick look into the history of the once magnificent city of Mari. There's lots more on the way, so stay tuned. Thanks so much for really appreciate what does mari have to do with this well again steganography can be a message hidden in plain sight so i've told you guys that i've been to syria many times and and i worked on really weird things uh along the lines and when hillary clinton was secretary of state and and before that under bush i i i spent a lot of time in areas like turkey and syria and whatnot specifically the outskirts of uh mari which are by the border of iraq believe it or not mari kind of disappeared uh you know after babylonian rule it survived a bit and then the greeks kind of had it and then they kind of freaking let it go 
And we've never heard of Mari again. But see, this Syrian war that happened allowed for the plummet of many things. And Mari was a target. They destroyed idols and, and, and searched for things, very specific things in that, you know, place. Uh, what is really bizarre is, um, you know, obviously I said Idlib is key here, but um, this is how you know you've been made. <laughs> this is the weirdest thing ever because they've just pointed it out as to what the problem they have with me is. So, look at this. Apparently, I have an IMB, IMDB profile. Someone put my profile in here. And take a look. They said that I'm the producer of Shadowgate, which is weird. Because if you click on Shadowgate, hopefully it stays in the same page. It says the director's Gavin. Millie's the writer. And it stars Patrick Berge. Uh, Millie needs to get in there and fix that shit. But what's weird is, is that I'm the producer. And that since 2014, I was at the Scott Adams show. And I'm an actress and producer known for Shadowgate. But here's where the target is. Do you see what that says? Red Sparrow. Mari. Do you see that? It says that I was an actress in Red Sparrow. This is steganography. They know. And man, are they angry. Let me see if I can zoom it in for you guys. There we go. Now, if you watch the movie Red Sparrow, and uh, you'll see there's no Mari, but I know Mari was one of my assignments before the Syrian war. It's quite interesting that they would bring that up. I, I You know, funny how the Tory Says show is not on here, but Scott Adams is, and Shadowgate, that I'm a producer, Mari uncredited. This is very, very important. And they're upset. And they should be. You know who actually was facilitating um, the whole Syrian thing? I want you to take a wild guess who helped orchestrate that coup. It's the person that I told you that I feared. And I've told you about this before. Indeed. John Bolton. So I wanted to start off with telling you, this is where we're going to be spilling some tea. Because I did tell you how scary he is. And you're going to see how that ties in. So let's see one of his best projects, creation. So we're going to start with a video from uh, 2014. You know, terror and all. Let's start talking, because we should. See, while the news are telling you, oh my God, the Ukrainian plane, it got crashed on the border of, of Greece. Actually, it was, you know, in Kavala, which is up north. Uh, and the plane was actually coming from Kosovo, and it's and its destination was Jordan. And then you're going to be like, well, why does Jordan need guns? Jordan doesn't need guns. Nigeria does. 
And Nigeria was getting those guns. Stop. Yes. And the reason that Nigeria needs this is, um, you know, I'm going to say this and fuck if I hurt anybody's feelings. Back in the day, they used to sell their own people in Nigeria, in all of Africa for money as slaves. Now these motherfucking politicians are selling out every, they're, they're assisting in genocide. But remember that. Anyway, let's take a look at this amazing, organized, out of control now, coup that was orchestrated by John Bolton. It was here in Meduguri, the capital oh, of Bono no. State, that it all began. As long ago as 2001, a charismatic cleric named Muhammad Yusuf started preaching a strict interpretation of Islam. Leading a group of young loyalists, they called themselves Jama'at Ahl Sunnah Liddawah Wal Jihad, or people committed to the teachings of the Prophet and Holy War. Because they rejected Western influences in education, local people started calling them Boko Haram, which colloquially means Western education is sinful. They said that education produced the bad type of government, corrupt government. So they tied the condition of the people to the type of education the leaders received. By 2009, the rebellion had developed into all-out confrontation with the state. Sparked by a traffic incident, days of fighting between the police and Boko Haram members left hundreds killed, including their leader, Muhammad Yusuf, who's said to have been extrajudicially executed. His mosque, which used to be here, was torn down. It's not just the mosque that was destroyed. Other properties belonging to suspected Boko Haram members and their relatives were either demolished or seized by authorities and handed to other people. The idea was if you wipe out their physical presence, they will be forgotten. Instead, the group returned for vengeance under the leadership of Abu Bakr Shakao, the face of a movement of undiminished brutality whose attacks have not spared Christians or Muslims, old or young. Shakao studied in this Islamic college in Midigri. He's said to have been an intelligent student. People who knew him are now afraid to be associated with him. This man who says he was his classmate and neighbor asked us to conceal his identity. Sometimes when teachers were away, he would take the lead. But generally, he was an introvert. He was also temperamental. Borno state officials say they tried to reach out to the group in 2011. Dr. Bulama Gubio of the Borno Elders Forum says a negotiated settlement would have been possible at that time. He says the group made these demands. The arrest and prosecution of those who killed their leaders. Compensation for the families of dead Boko Haram fighters and rebuilding their schools and mosques. The federal government, Gubio says, did not take the talk seriously because they were not led by Shakao himself. Today, civilian fighters who've been engaged in battling Boko Haram alongside the military say the group is well-armed. Its recent use of suicide bombers suggests tactical help from more sophisticated regional groups, they say. They are using RPG. They are using AK-47. They are using these anti-aircraft. They are exploring fighters. Boko Haram is now made up of multiple cells. People here say the government's best bet in fighting back is strong intelligence work that would chip away at the cells from within. Rawi Ragah Al Jazeera, Medjugorje, Northern Nigeria. Nigeria. So, terrorism, slaughtering Christians, okay, okay, okay. Well, let's just see more. You know, my favorite history teacher actually breaks this down. And, and that's what's incredible. Because this teacher breaks down who Boko Haram is. And I've told you this. I, I, okay. So I'm not scared of Bolton, like physically. 
I am scared of his capabilities and the fact that he believes that if he gets the job done, anything is okay. It's like these crazy climate change freaks that think by killing people, they're literally saving the planet. So they really believe that they are helping the world by eliminating people, hence why this big push for um, catharsis, as they call it. And, and, and that, like I said, not many people, this is our final hit. Okay. Um, and this is why the people are necessary. But I want you to look at who Boko Haram is and why these weapons going to them is important. Hey guys, welcome to Hip Hughes History. Thanks for pressing my buttons. We have a serious video today on Boko Haram, the Islamic insurgency that's occurring in northeastern Nigeria that since 2009 has been responsible for up to 10,000 deaths. And I think it's pretty important that we all know about it. So let's take a look at Nigeria. We'll take a look at the history and we'll figure out who the heck these guys are and what we can do about it. Video for the line. Really fast history. You definitely need to know where Nigeria is. If you take a look at the big map right there, you can see that it's kind of in the Western armpit of uh, Africa. It's a really large country. It's kind of nicknamed the giant of Africa for a reason. Not only is it filled with people, 175 million, making it the largest populated country in Africa and the largest economy recently passing South Africa, but it's filled to the brim with oil, you know, uh, gold, uh, diamonds. It's got a lot of natural resources. And we'll explore why, even though that's true, 60% of the population lives on less than a dollar a day. So they have extreme poverty in Nigeria. But it was a British colony, kind of sphere of influence, race for Africa that occurred in the 19th century. The British got their hands on that puppy. And uh, they really invested themselves in the coastal region because that's where the money was to be made. They really didn't have an incentive to go into the Know, internal northern part of Nigeria and mess with the natives. So they really kind of left that part alone and they let kind of the former remnants of the uh, Islamic caliphates that existed in that area to kind of remain and, and they live under their own kind of Sharia laws and they're kind of left alone for a very long time. So from 1901 to 1960, you know, Britain, you know, Britain raked Nigeria over the economic coals and I think really took advantage of them and then, you know, kind of left in 1960. And you have to remember that not only do you have 500 ethnic groups that are in Nigeria, but those borders are artificial. So even though they were, you know, independent in 1960, freedom, death, you know, from 1960 to 1999, when they're going to become a constitutional republic, they're going to have coup d'etats, military dictatorships and torture, killing, rape, murder, mayhem, poverty, and all kinds of corruption. It's pretty bad. Let's just put it that way. And then and technically they become a constitutional republic in 1999. Uh, but really, I think what occurred is that you really kind of have a compromise between the Northern Islamists and the Southern Christians that kind of agree to power share. And they're each in their own way, kind of different levels of corruption. The president right now, you ready for this name? Get ready for this one. Good luck, Jonathan. That's his, his name. He's been the president since I believe uh, 2010. And they had kind of an informal agreement where they would switch between Muslim president and Christian president. But uh, this guy won't give up power. He's running again. I'm in 2015, and that's kind of one of the issues that we're going to talk about in a moment. So really, we kind of have a corrupt government. We have kind of a republic. We have 9-11 uh, occurring, and now we're going to get to Boko Haram. 
So even though out of the 36 states in Nigeria, 12 of them, the Northern Islamist states, all adopt Sharia as law. I mean, they're pretty fundamental. They're not fundamental enough for the Wahhabists, kind of the Sunni sect derived out of Saudi Arabia, aligning themselves with the Islamic, uh, you know, new caliphate, the new Islamic state in Syria and Levithan. Anybody that's colluding with Westerners is bad news to them. And they name themselves Boko Haram, which like literally means Western education forbidden. I believe their actual name is people committed uh, to the prophets teaching for propagation and jihad. Doesn't really flow off the tongue very well. Uh, but these are some pretty serious cats about strict interpretation of the Quran. They don't believe in any other kind of education. So all they do is read the Quran. So they're lifting words out of this that basically in their own mind's eye, I'm not saying that all you know people that are Islamic believe this, but you know, they're on a jihad. They believe that if you aren't a Muslim, you need to die. So they're gonna make that that mission. So even though they have Sharia law and they have Islamist, you know, kind of rulers in that area, they're you know in cahoots with the government, according to these guys. So in 2002, right after 9-11, September 11th, 2001, 2002, uh, they formed Boko Haram under Muhammad Yusuf, their leader, who's kind of this kind of weird cleric guy. He's actually an academic. He's a pretty smart guy. Drove a Mercedes Benz. A little bit weird being anti-Western. But really, from 2002 to 2009, you know, Muhammad's not taking action. Yusuf is really you know, teaching the religion and he's opening boarding schools for Islamist students. And because of the high poverty rate and because the military is so corrupt and, you know, the government is really located in, you know, the southern part of the country, you know, people are kind of flocking to him. He's starting to have hundreds and then thousands of people that are in Boko Haram. Um, and then the government starts to get a little bit worried. And in 2009, Operation Flush, they go after these Islamists in the northern part of Nigeria. They think, you know, they're and they are, you know, gathering guns and weapons and bombs. So kind of an anti-terrorist raid. And they capture 700 of these guys. And they're pretty rough about it. There's no doubt about it. The United Nations has labeled, you know, Nigerians military outfits with some you know, pretty gruesome stuff that they're doing. The same kind of stuff they were accusing the other side of doing. Rape and torture and genocide, mass killings, um, corruption, really, really bad stuff. And they end up killing Muhammad Yusuf. Unattended consequences. They take out the leader who really wasn't being violent yet. And you better believe that someone's waiting in the wings. And it's his military commander, Abu Bukar Shakao. I might mispronounce that. Abu Bukar Shakao. Abu Bukar Shakao. That guy right there. And this guy, he's even, I think, crazier than the other guy. You want to hear some of their beliefs? They don't believe in evolution. You probably could figure that out. Certainly all of Nigeria is against anything that's even related to the word gay. They actually have a law um, that makes homosexuality not only a crime, but relations of a crime, joining any civil rights groups a crime. And actually, if you know someone who's gay and you don't rat them out, that's a crime. But we're getting off topic here. We're going to stick with Boko Haram. Um, they don't believe that the earth is a sphere. <laughs> I got a good one. And they don't believe in evaporation. So that's who we're dealing with, but uh, Abu Bukar is a serious cat. He's a serious cat and he's taken serious strategic plans. So we'll go in order. This is 2009. We'll just kind of take each year, summarize really quick. In 2010, his first big gig is free his, 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 his peeps. 
So they go on massive, like, prison, you know, breakout <laughs> attacks with hundreds of guys with machine guns. They rescue 700 of their brothers that are, you know, jihadists. So now their army is growing. And then 2011, he really adopts this kind of Iraq, uh, Syria, Islamist kind of, you know, suicide bomber, IED. They attack Western targets for the t- first time in 2011. And then in 2012, it seems like every year they have a new strategy. Um, first, they have the election again of uh, Jonathan not Jonathan, it's good luck Jonathan. And that really broke tradition. It was supposed to be an Islamist president, and it's you know, the Christian who's the president again. That's probably driving more people in the North that are feeling like they're not part of this government, that the South is taking over into the arms of Boko Haram. So in uh, 2012, they make an ultimatum. They say, basically, civil war, if you're a Christian, get the heck out of Dodge. And they go really on kind of hit and run mass killings. You know, they'll, they'll kind of uh, go to the outskirts of the town. They'll come in. They'll assassinate some police officers to get the heck out of Dodge. And the government is cracking down even worse. Uh, more torture, more mass killings from the government side. So really nothing is getting solved. And then in 2013, their strategy changes again, maybe to raise money, maybe to hide out. But they start crossing borders. Cameroon, Niger, Chad. All of these regions that are kind of in this eastern part, you know, and northern part off Nigeria become kind of escape bases for these guys. And they start kidnapping tourists and religious people and all kinds of people, you know, related to people that have money. And they are raising their booty. They're, they're making some money. And their hit and run techniques change in 2014 as they start to gather territory. They're not very much different. They actually start flying the flag soon of the Islamists that are flying it in Syria, the same black flag you can see up on the wall. April becomes very memorable. You guys probably remember this. Hashtag bring back our girls. They kidnapped 276 girls at a Christian missionary school. Only 50 escaped, right? The world was ablaze with that hashtag, right? Michelle Obama's got the sign out. All the news stations are all over. Everybody's up in approval. You know what happened? Nothing. In fact, if you, you know, listen to uh, Abu Bakr, he's bragging about it. He's saying this is war booty and it's in the Quran and I'm going to sell these guys off to sex slavers and marry them off. And that's what he did. That occurred. They didn't rescue those girls. And then now he's getting even more brave. In May, are you ready for this? They kidnap the wife of the vice president of Cameroon to raise more money. These guys are just really... Big you-know-what. They're big heads. They, they do big things. <laughs> They're taking more land. They have, at the end of 2014, as much land as Belgium has. And they're declaring themselves an Islamist state. And then in 2015, as the world watches France as a dozen die in a terrible terrorist attack, they attack in Baga Boko, and they kill, estimates are up to 2,000 people. Almost as many people that died in 9-11 died on January 3rd, 2015 in northern Nigeria. And it's seemingly that the world didn't blink yet. And that's where we are. We've declared them a terrorist group. Uh, Barack Obama and uh, the different intelligence agencies and different parts of the U.S. government have tried, tried to help the Nigerian government by aiding them and facilitating them and sending military advisors. Uh, but backroom chatter is that these guys are so corrupt the president of Nigeria was just caught flying $7 million of cash out of the country to South Africa, got caught, just kind of brushed it off his shoulder. So he's really a kind of a hard guy to work with. So I guess the question is, what next? 
So here we are. We're in this kind of global war on terrorism, guys. What do we do? That's the next question. I really have two questions. Leave it down in the comments below. Number one, what do we do? Uh, right now, there's an African coalition with like 3,000 troops. They're probably going to get their butts kicked. Nigerian army is just, All you know, right. What so what do we do? Well, like I've said, the problem that we have is when we weaponize certain uh, demographics and we create mercenaries out of them, they lose control. It only takes one person to switch it. So many of you are probably thinking, what is the source of this jihad? And it's actually quite simple and you can sympathize with their cause um, because I believe that all of you would probably do the same thing because we're in kind of a similar war here. And hopefully uh, I will be able to explain that better today uh, with this segment on Boko Haram and rolling over into Bolton. Uh, the consideration that we should have is to listen to what these kidnapping stories of the girls that ran away, which again is a clear CAA production, but in essence, they always tell you what they do. They're not smart. So I want you to pay attention carefully to things that really did happen, I guess, a day so many people remember. April 14th, 2014, 276 female students were kidnapped by Boko Haram from a government secondary school in Chibuk, Nigeria. The incident outraged so many all over the world, igniting prominent figures to demand that the girls be brought back to safety. As of today, 100 students are still missing, but survivors, Joy Bashara and Lydia Pogu, were among the few who were able to escape. And just last week, seven years and 16 days after their kidnapping and their harrowing escape, we are so happy to say that Joy and Lydia were able to celebrate a momentous occasion. Yes, their graduation from college, Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida. And there you see Joy and Lydia here today to share their powerful story. First of all, congratulations to you both. What an incredible accomplishment. You know, here was a group that was trying to stop women, stop girls from getting educated. And now you two both have college degrees. So I am so proud and so happy for both of you. And Joy, I want to begin Thank with you, you because I know you've shared your story, both of you have, about how you were able to escape. Can you give us uh, just uh, an idea of how that was, how that, how you were able to do that given those circumstances? Joy, I'll begin with you. Sure. Um, yeah, so at the heat of that moment, we were all in the back of a truck, like three different trucks they took us in. So we were all in the trucks. And I just remembered wondering uh, if I will ever be able to see my family or loved ones again. And I remember thinking of what my mom will do at that moment. And uh, my answer came back to be prayer. So I did pray. And like five minutes after my prayers, there was a car that is a monk that the Boko Haram people were in and it couldn't move anymore. So they needed to fix it and due to the fact that they drove far away from town and now we are far away. They couldn't go back and steal another car. So they had to go to fix it back to fix it and help fix it. So at the moment when they all went back to go fix it. The whole trucks was, uh, we were surrounded at the beginning, but now we are free and there is nothing around us to see us jump out. And I was in the last truck 
So I just remembered a, a voice in my head saying, jump out. What a decision. Uh, it was, uh, you know, what you thought was between two different version ways of dying. But in fact, you were able to jump out and run to your freedom. Uh, Lydia, I'm curious, once you were able to get free and to run and, and, and you were back in the arms of your parents eventually, how did you make that transition back from being in, in, in the most frightening moment of your life um, to trying to get back to some sort of normalcy? Um, after I jumped out, um, I personally decided that I'm not going to go back to school anymore because they advise us that wherever we go, they're going to find us. So I was under the impression that, okay, like school is no longer in my picture because if I go to school, they're going to find me. So I decided to just stay with my parents until we got called Joe and I to come to uh, American Embassy to talk to, you know, Congress Federal Wilson and Congress Joy, right? Yeah, to talk to her. That was how I was, I was able to change my mind to come here because they did tell us that, oh, America is a safe country. Nobody's going to come and kidnap us and all of that. That was how I was able to, you know, reconsider my decision. But on top of that, um, before that decision, my parents and I, actually all of the people in Chiba will have to leave the town by 6 p.m. to go out to the bush to go sleep because people were under the impression that the Boko Haram will come back again. So it was really hard. Even still now, the Boko Haram still attacking some villages and people sleep out, still having the fear of that. So I didn't feel safe there. Even when we went home in 2014, I didn't feel safe. So that was how... It is It is hard to imagine um, what you all have been through physically, emotionally, mentally. And then at the same time, Joy, so many highs, so many lows, but walking across that stage, what did it feel like when you received that college dis- diploma despite all you've been through? It was awesome. I felt <laughs> great. <laughs> I felt great because I remember being told that I will not even be able to finish high school, that I'm very dumb and I'm, I won't be able to get there. And uh, all those harsh words tore, at the time tore me down and made me so discouraged. But I didn't give up. At the time, I used to go to high school classes with everyone else and also taking GED lessons on the sides and stuff like that. I never gave up or listened to the negative thoughts. And walking on that stage like last Friday, it felt great to actually put those who told me I could never graduate back to like, wow, I thought you wouldn't make it. You know what I mean? So it was exciting to walk on that stage. Wow. After being told you can't do it. They say so, the best the best revenge is success. And uh, it looks like you've accomplished that. And I'm curious, uh, Lydia, what else, what's next for you? You've got your diploma. You've got your degree. Where is your future headed? Um, so I got my degree in uh, legal studies, which means pre-law. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to get my master again at SCU in human services. So thank God to SCU for, you know, offering me the opportunity to you know further my future like my education so i'm grateful for that um so that's what i'm doing and then going back to law school after i'm done with my masters wow i mean it is so remarkable and incredible to see what you all have done and where you're headed next we hope you stay in touch but you know what we're not the only ones who are impressed with what you two have been able to do our friends at talbot's 
heard you were coming on the show today and they want you both to start your future careers or even future more and bigger educational goals on the right foot and they know it's important to dress to impress so they are giving you each a five thousand dollar gift card to help you support on your path to success oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a shopping spree ladies. <laughs> oh my gosh it's a shopping spree get out of here listen i have said africa was very important and i have alluded to what is going on in africa and we've talked about how you know, man-made famines control populations. Now, climate activists are insane. They've lost their mind. But in order to create what they know, because nothing can stop what's coming, uh, they need to push and usher the people of the United States to be on board. The Georgia Guidestones being exploded is not a coincidence. It's to eliminate that in order for the future to not remember that. Because then <laughs> you'll know what they've been doing. Like I said, it was the chiefs of their own tribes that sold them and the chiefs of their own nations that are killing them. I'm going to take us back in time to where um, the president of Nigeria, still there, said that they've got this shit all under control, yet they're getting weapons. The question is, what are the weapons for and whose side is he really on? And pay attention to what he says. This is from 2015. You can put it in a nasty way as you want, but I assure you we haven't failed. Um, Adamawa State Yubi states are free from Boko Haram. Borno, which is their base, I think they have two to three local governments. Boko Haram has reverted to using IEDs, improvised explosive device, indoctrinating young girls from 15 years and below to go and explode it in churches, in mosques, in marketplaces, in motor parks, they have now been reduced to that. But uh, articulated conventional attacks on centers of communication or, and, and uh, population in towns and so on, they are no longer capable of doing that effectively. So I think um, technically we have won the war because um, people are going back into their neighborhoods. Uh, we have a committee on the ground liaising with local governments uh, through the city and so on. People are going back. A major problem now is rehabilitation with over 1.5 million people internally displaced persons repairing the infrastructure, the schools, the health centers, uh, the number of bridges blown. That's what we are facing now. But Boko Haram, as an organized fighting force, I assure you that we have dealt with them. Your critics say you are playing the blame game, spending time blaming the previous administration instead of thinking of how to take Nigeria out of its present situation. What have you to say about that? I think they have been unfair. I've just been telling you, and Nigerians know, Boko Haram was effectively 
holding 16 local governments before in the three states, Borno, Yubi, and Adama. Yubi and Adama are absolutely free. And there are about three local governments, or four maximum, in the hands where Boko Harams are there. And I have told you that they cannot now marshal forces and attack uh, towns or attack um, military installations and so on, as they did, as they used to take uh, uh, in Medjugorje itself before. Uh, I don't think this is mere talking. And we have removed cyber chiefs, we reorganized the military, uh, we have uh, got some um, hardware for them, and we have got the retraining. So in other words, a Nigerian president that was just elected at the time said that he's got this under control. Now let's go to 2016 and see how his army said that they captured a Boko Haram stronghold. This is 2016. Begin in Nigeria, where the country's president, president one of the last strongholds of Boko Haram has been crushed. President Mohamedou Buhari says his army defeated Boko Haram in the Sambisa forest. That's following a months long campaign focusing on the 1300 square kilometer forest. And Buhari has praised the Nigerian army for their work. In a statement, he said, I want to use this opportunity to commend the determination, courage and resilience of troops for crushing the remnants of the Boko Haram insurgents at Camp Zero. The Sambisa forest lies in northwest Nigeria on the border with Cameroon. It's significant because it allows the fighters to cross over the border into Chad. Well, Samuel Okocha joins us now live from Lagos with more. Hi, Samuel. Give us some more context as to how big of a defeat this is in the war against Boko Haram. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, this is a major, major defeat, if it's true. And this is because uh, Boko Haram has made the Sambisa forest its major stronghold. It's a vast, huge forest where um, most of their captives are believed to be held, including the over 200 schoolgirls, you know, captured uh, about two years ago. And so if indeed it is true they've been crushed in that forest, it's going to be a very big victory for um, the government of Buhari, who rode on the promise to defeat the insurgents while campaigning to become president. And you keep repeating, though, if it's true, why why would you have doubts? Yes, uh, this, this is because we've, we've had a similar statement in the past. For example, we've had uh, um, news about the, 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 the uh, capture of the main leader only for him to resurface again. Uh, in videos. So there's a little bit of skepticism, no doubt. However, uh, this is a major statement uh, because uh, over, over time, we've never heard this kind of strong statement saying that the group has been crushed in Sambisa Forest. Before now, what you've heard is that uh, there is a serious um, bombardment in that area, but this is the first time we we are, we are seeing a statement. We are hearing of a statement as strong as this, talking about a total crush. Okay, 
Samuel Okocha, we're going to have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining us with that from Lagos. Well, meanwhile, a group of 21 schoolgirls has... So as you guys see, the Boko Haram story has been going on for a while. And not only that, Chad is playing into it. And if you remember in 2014... Uh, uh, the Dr. Ho, Hunter Biden's business person, was in Chad, and there are emails referring to Dr. Jill Biden and Hunter Biden buying off people in Chad. <laughs> so interesting. But we should talk about Boko Haram a little bit more. And I think the most important part is to go to the news from last month where, you know, Boko Haram, who's been under control, is now again under control 12 years later. Uh, this is a quite a telling piece. Ostensible moments. So, Nigerian Niger leaders are preaching hope. In his message to Nigerians to celebrate Idi Fitri, President Mamadou Buhari said the end of the war with Boko Haram and bandits is in sight. According to the president, the final victory is within sight as the Boko Haram and Iswa fighters are on the final stage. Meanwhile, Chris, the Christian Association of Nigeria can has urged the federal government to reconsider its program of de-radicalizing and rehabilitating arrested and surrendered terrorists. The National General Secretary of Khan, Joseph Daramola, stated that the program is becoming counterproductive. Before we go into this um, program to rehabilitate and de-radicalize terrorists, President Mahmoud Bari is saying that, look, banditry and Boko Haram that on the final lap that any moment from now that the um, government we would de would defeat this terrorist from your estimation you visited um, the northeast you visited uh, some of the, the theater of war and can, do you think President Mamadou Bari is right? <laughs> I appreciate the president's efforts in uh, providing equipment from the army because I saw evidence of that uh, when I went to the northeast. I just returned from my degree um, some hours ago. I appreciate his concern. I heard where the president was saying that every life lost to uh, insecurity is a big pain to him. I do not doubt that he's pained by the loss of lives. Any, any father, any parent will be bothered that people are dying in this manner. But I do not agree with the president's claim that um, banditry and Boko Haram will end soon. We have had that kind of statement a number of times. Even commanders in the charter of war will tell you that, look, we'll finish this war within so-so time. Hmm. You can give timelines in, in the military. It will be a to exit the military. Uh, when he now came to us, he now told us that in 20 years, because he never said that when he was your minister, because saying that... When he was being screened, uh, ambassador. he said it could take 20 years. Said, oh my. God will not let that your prediction come to pass. <laughs> so, people... Uh, the, the, the truth is, we've made progress in the Northeast. And I'm happy to admit it. 
the sacrifices of uh, armed forces in the northeast have not been in vain. There are more attacks now between the factions of Boko Haram against one another hmm. than against the military. In fact, they've weakened side. themselves. Really? Yes. The, the other day... They, the they swap guys they and the um, Shekau guys. Sometimes the Shekau people will gain upper hand. They'll kill a lot of these guys. Sometimes, too, it will be I swap that gain upper hand. It all depends on um, where the war, where the battle um, is conducted. So if you go to the enemy's territory now, to attack him, man, you didn't know that the enemy was prepared. You may get a bloody nose. If you are, you can ambush the enemy. Usually, ambu ambushes are uh, one of the most popular uh, strategies of war. You can ambush the enemy, catch him by surprise, and they will lose many of their fighters. These days, since you know the two, the two leaders did not die. The two leaders of the factions did not die from the Nigerian army uh, efforts. They, the, the terrorists themselves took themselves on. Mm. Abu Musab al-Banawi went to meet Shekau in his fortress. Mm. And with Shekau seeing that he had been sur uh, surrounded, he took his own life using the suicide belts. That was why Abu Musab al-Banawi, in an audio clip, that he posted after the fight, said that Shekau will go to hell because he did what the Quran says no one should do. The Quran does not permit people taking their own lives. Mm. It's against the tenets of Islam. So he was attacking him in that audio clip. Now, Abu Musab al-Banawi was also in his own fortress. After he had been announced as the new leader, you know, there was a time that he was removed mm -hmm. as leader. Then after his efforts to unify the factions by going to take on Shekau, because that was his goal, that once we take Shekau out, we can unify the factions and then have access to the vast area called Sambisa Forest, because that was where Shekau operated from. They, on their part, were operated on the islands of the Lake Chad. So once he did that, they made him the Amir. That is, the, um, Iswa made him the Amir. You know, ISIS made him the Amir, the leader. But Shekau, remnants of Shekau's people, mm. some of who fled to northern Cameroon when that fight was raging, now when, went. Ooh, all the sauce. I uh, met him in his own hideout and fought him. He was injured. That's um, sir, Abu Musab, yes. He now succumbed to his injuries. Doesn't as if the army went there to attack. So he died. They were, yeah, he now died from his injuries. So since then, they've been taking on one another. And that has also helped us. Because, because we, we can, can only be, be happy that they are killing one another. Let me tell you something about Boko Haram. So Bolton himself had said that it is a rising threat in North Africa. We've just agreed to give $1.2 billion to the Horn of Africa, which, by the way, is uh, Ilhan Omar's, uh, you know, center of process. She was arrested for demonstrating has nothing to do with this. But we're just passed a bill to give them billions of dollars in the Horn of Africa, where the biggest stronghold is Erdogan with his Muslim schools, which is weird because he's supporting them. But then we have 
uh, you know, Nigeria is unable to stop Boko Haram. And the, the source lies to this. And this is where real cults come in. And religions are cultified, as we know, most cults surround, you know, um, you know, Christianity and Islam, right? They, they make fanatics out of people. And so what, uh, has occurred here is that Boko Haram, when it started, it was, Hey, we need to give obedience to people because we are not aligning with the West. And the West's ideals were to eradicate the people of Africa. They uh, took the thing of, you know, the United States of America, and people are going to be like, what? Do you think, you know, that the coups, all these wars in Syria, Libya, and Africa were created by the Africans themselves? Listen, they're greedy fuckers, right? And their, uh, you know, their, uh, ca- their societies are so spread and far apart. It's ridiculous, right? Uh, on how, um, you know, distance it is from the poor to the rich. There's really no actual middle class. Middle class is what you would consider poverty. So Christianity has been aligned with Western values. Therefore, Christianity is the target because then we can cleanse any Western ideology. The Western ideology is the fact that they're eradicating the Africans and the Africans, the actual Africans are pissed and the leaders are taking cuts. And this is fact. I have talked to you guys about my trips in Nigeria and how I befriended a Nigerian prince. He was really hot too. His name was Nelson and he had green eyes. Um, you know, he was so, <laughs> it was so funny because I was, um, a student again. That was my cover. And, uh, I actually had an old, uh, time friend, uh, that, you know, I would meet on, uh, in the summers and we were really close from Greece that was visiting and I let them stay with me. And I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm using the student card. So whatever. And, you know, I, I knew this person from a kid and, you know, uh, he was staying in my, um, place and, you know, I had the Nigerian prince sending me, I kid you not, he was throwing rocks at my window, you know, rolling up his, with his rover. Right? Uh, and, um, you know, he was kind of like, damn, what did you do? Like, I was like, I didn't do anything. Um, we're just friends. But he was actually my target because I needed to go to Lagos, which I did go. And he was really hot, but he was uh, really a sellout to his own people. So I'm not going to get into that. And this is how I learned how to speak Ibu too. Uh, I didn't have a Range Rover. The Prince did, you know, and for that time, what is it like 2001? We know. No, no, no. 1990. Shoot. Look at that. Showing my age now. 1998 was when I got that cover. So, uh, he was my target that I successfully adhered to by 2001. Took a time, took time. Uh, but I did get into Lagos and, you know, they loved me, even though I was tiny, I always had a bubble, butt, no matter how small I was. So, Hey, she has childbearing hips. Yeah. It was before I got pregnant Ooh, with my first love who, by the way, you know, I, I love the crap out of him. We were kids and it happened because, you know, I was one of those smart, smart people. First of all, I was told I couldn't have kids and that was, you know, I knew that. And then second, you know, I thought, Hey, it's my first time having sex. I'm not going to get pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Not one, but two, but okay. Um, but anyway, um, you know, I, you know, it was all coincidences for, 
uh, this gentleman. I met him at the Hippodrome. Uh, then uh, we accidentally ran into each other a couple times at some place called Wimpy's. And uh, then I was a student at his university and it was like, oh my gosh, this is such a coincidence. And so, yeah. So Nigeria, Nigeria's ideals are, um, you know, that they needed to cleanse uh, all Western notions. And this is why they were so powerful. And this is why you can't stop them. And this is why they're willing to kill themselves. Because just like the extreme climate change people who, well, you know, a lot of people don't see this and they're ramping it up. Uh, famine is just one aspect, but water is another. Remember, California actually has no water. And now we have our dam that's being exploded, which is really weird because I was having a heated conversation just about the water, uh, huh, uh, you know, for a while uh, this morning on my late call. And I was like, well, you know, Antarctica is the only place that we can actually get water um, and rainwater is not allowed. And we can't really use the rainwater because it's so polluted. So they're actually creating a drought. And uh, then we have, uh, you know, we've got to reduce this population for sure. But now it's who's in charge of this depopulation. And obviously China has 20% of the world's population. Hence their foot standing tall saying we will be dominating in the population scheme. Uh, because, of course, these uh, globalists are more important and their seed should reign king. And I told you one thing about Africa that's interesting is that South Africa is very proximal to the Antarctic so much that they get penguins and Australia. So, again, water, 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 water. But key here with Boko Haram is that they realized that the West was plummeting everything in on the African continent from artifacts. And we saw this throughout the past decade. All these reports of illegal smuggling of artifacts. I've already talked to you about Mount Ararat and uh, operations that have been done there. And, uh, you know, I can go on and on because, uh, you know, Africa and the Middle East were, you know, I was, uh, that was my domain. And so, you know, we will be running out of water uh, um, at some point, and they all know this, and this is why we need to reduce the population. They knew this, and this is why they put restrictions on people collecting rainwater. This is why they put restrictions on many things uh, that are coming up. So, the reason that I'm bringing up Boko Haram is because a lot of weaponry was being sent from Serbia to uh, Nigeria. Now, the reports will tell you that the Serbs were actually sending it to the Indians, but that's false because the plane was actually en route to Jordan and Nigeria was expecting Jordan to deliver all those planes and weaponry. So they're obfuscating the truth by disconnecting the two reportings. They're all telling you that they were going to Jordan and they're all telling you that it's going to the Indian militia, which again, Indians are high in population, hence why Mondi is trying to maintain his culture and his nation. But, you know, other nations don't have people that will stand up for them. They'd rather wipe them out uh, like these globalists do. Uh, so uh, the weapons were headed to Nigeria under the guise of Boko Haram. And Boko Haram has pretty much calmed down because the people of Africa, regardless of their religious affiliation, have now seen the light and are understanding what is going on.
Now, what's funny is, is that um, uh, I'm going to show you these two uh, reports within days of each other. One is a follow-up. And this is from just a few days ago. And this is why it's really important that we pay attention to the news. Because um, Africa is going to be coming into focus a lot more. I mean, could you imagine how the Black Lives Matter people would feel knowing that their actions are funding the eradication of Africans in Africa? They'd be really upset. But that time will come, too. So I think it's important that um, uh, we understand that there was a prison attack in uh, in Africa. And those that um, escaped were Boko Haram terrorists. Take a listen. And Hello, thank, thank you for you joining us on Newsweek, where we highlight some of the biggest stories that made the headlines in the week. I am Jacinta Obioko. Today on Newsweek, bandit attack medium security custodial center, Kujay in Abuja, freeing more than 60 Boko Haram terrorists. There have been at least 13 security attacks on custodial centers across the country since October 2020. The latest, which is the terrorist attack called the Custodial Center in Kujay, has raised several questions on the state of security of the facilities across the country. Also this week, attackers opened fire on the convoy of cars carrying the advanced team of security guards, protocol and media officers ahead of President Muhammad Buhari's trip to Daura for Salah celebrations. Although they were repelled by the military, police and DSS personnel, two persons in the convoy suffered minor injuries. Later on the show, we will take a look at developments with party politics ahead of the 2023 general election as APC was River State Governor Nelson Wike, while Labour Party presidential flag bearer Peter Obi picks running mate. Stay with us. Earlier in the week, President Muhammad Buhari visited the medium security custodial center in Kujay, where the inspected uh, the holding facility attacked on Tuesday night by gunmen. Sifionisian reports. The custodial center in Kujay is swarming with security operatives in the aftermath of the Tuesday night attack by gunmen. Fleeing inmates are being recaptured. The operatives of these correctional facilities are apprehending those who fled. We've seen several trucks with um, inmates, you know, being conveyed back into the facility that has been damaged. As at Wednesday, the correctional service said 443 escapees were recaptured. In a statement, the spokesman for the service said four inmates lost their lives during the attack, while 16 others sustained injuries. Most likely, they are Boko Haram. Moments after a visit to the damaged facility by the Minister of Defense, the Inspector General of Police, and the Commandant General of the Nigeria Security and Civil Defense Corps, presidential security operatives took over the center, an indication the president would visit. And true to expectation, President Buhari arrived at the medium security custodial center in company of senior government officials. He was given a tour of the facility, further revealing the level of damage done by the attackers. The president left without a word to journalists. The attack is the worst yet on the custodial center established in 1989 to hold 800 inmates.
ACN TVC News, Abuja. Joining me now for more discussion on this is a security consultant and retired assistant director with Department of State Services, ESS, Dennis Samakri. Thank you for joining me. Good evening. Good evening. Right. So what are the implications of this latest jailbreak? Um, the implication of this particular attack is very dire. You know, it is... Uh, it is uh, very, very worrisome that um, uh, bandits, or these are terrorists actually, um, who have come all the way from outside the country to come right inside the country, to the middle of the country, the Federal Capital Territory, to attack a prison, release some of their terrorist brothers there, and then of course left. Um, without even being challenged. I, I think that's a very, very worrisome uh, event, incident that we are facing. All right. The names and pictures of Boko Haram terrorists who escaped the, from the Kujie Correctional Center have been released. Are you confident that they will be arrested? Well, you know, in this country, we don't have much of a, a database or pictures uh, for identifying people easily. Uh, even if they are in the market, walking around amongst people, it will be pro problematic. Uh, but uh, that's why people in the Federal Capital Territory are supposed to be very, very vigilant because these people might even be in there mixed up with them. For those who didn't follow the uh, group that attacked, they might remain back in the, in the, in the Federal Capital Territory either looking for food or looking for money or looking for some kind of shelter or steal your car uh, so that they could use it to move out of the federal capital territory to somewhere. But uh, I don't even think the posters that were released have circulated good enough for people to, you know, study it and say, okay, let's watch out for these people. All right. Now, the Senate President Ahmed Lawal was disappointed over lack of CCTV at the Costudo Center. What else can we do to stop jailbreaks? Uh, well, um, CCTV, many people believe that is the all and all. That is not it. Uh, CCTV is very, very good, very necessary, but there are other physical security measures that are supposed to be put in place at that prison. Mm -hmm. In fact, in all prisons... So, upgrades in technology is what Nigeria needs. That's what they're telling you. Now, a jailbreak happened, breaking out 68 Boko Haram terrorists. But here's a weird thing. Here's a quick report on what happened two days later. On Monday, we told you that Sulaiman Sidi, one of the Boko Haram escapee who was arrested by NDLEA operatives, was handed over to the authorities to the Correctional Center in Kujé, the spokesperson of the NDLEA, Femi Baba Femi, confirmed to TVC News that the escapee would have to face terrorism charges proffered against him. Barely two days after the arrest of a wanted Boko Haram member who escaped in the aftermath of the attack on the Constitutional Center in Kujay, another escapee has been arrested. Suleiman Sidi was arrested by operatives of the NDLEA at a motor park in Irawan, Abuja. Uh, in the earlier hours of today, there was an actionable intelligence and um, 
they followed that intelligence and they were able to get to the guy um, that's um, one of the SKP, that's one of the wanted uh, terror suspects that escaped from um, the uh, Nigerian uh, Correctional Center in Kuje last Tuesday. According to the Drug Law Enforcement Agency, three wraps of cannabis were recovered from the SKP. The agency insists drug abuse enables criminal behavior. This is corroborated by a study conducted by the U.S. Department of Justice establishing a correlation between drug abuse and crime. We've often said it that um, these people, these criminal elements, they can't do what they are doing um, if they don't take mind-altering substances. No human being in his or her um, normal senses will go out to do the kind of uh, to commit the kind of atrocities some of these criminal elements con- commit across um, in parts of the country without be- their minds being altered by psychoactive substances. According to the 2018 UNODC report on drug use in Nigeria, one in seven persons aged between 15 and 64 years who had used drugs in the past year is suffering from drug-related disorders. The report also indicates drug abuse has been a cause of many criminal offenses such as theft, burglary, sex work, and shoplifting. And for emergency management to be effective, respond. So this guy had weed on him and he's a Boko Haram terrorist and they say they broke them out. No, they walked in and said, step the fuck aside, everybody out. We're taking these guys. It's like they're letting assassinators out of jail. Terrorists are being smuggled out. They got one guy and they perped him and look at what we're doing. And what people don't see is, mm, well, this lady put it nicely. I don't know who she is, but she put it nicely. Maybe this will help because I said this years ago. He has organized insane coups. And if you think about it, look at all the NGOs in Africa helping students. Look at 15 years of Epstein. Look at what Tedros did. Look at all these African leaders all getting shot, assassinated, heart attacked. And we've got all the viruses coming out from there. So let's just purge the dark continent that has no access. Nigeria is advocating for, uh, you know, closed caption television and more security measures and real identification and DNA establishment. Mm, we need to get these fuckers under control. They have now taken the go ahead that 2030 needs to come faster because this is going to be a big problem. I mean, Bolton tells you that, too. Brilliant. But to attempt to coup. Uh, I disagree with that as somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat. Yeah. Not here, but, you know, other places. Oh, how I love slip-ups from George W. Bush. And the thing is, the coup d'etats that he's talking about, I participated in almost every single one of them. Tori, we can't have people picking their leaders. That would be chaos. This is how you control by, uh, how did I say it? Spreading democratic values. All you have to look is at USAID, uh, you know, uh, initiatives. And just take a listen to how she puts it together admitting um, his involvement in Iraq. Well, he didn't admit, but we all know there was a slip up. The decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. 
Iraq. Anyway. Uh, and now to John Bolton, who is an American attorney diplomat that served as the 25th United States ambassador to the United Nations from 2005 to 2016. And he also served as the 26th United States national security advisor. So John slipped up. Well, I don't even know if I can call it slip up because he just said it casually and he laughed about it like it's nothing, like he's not committing a crime. Let me just show you the slip up. We'll come back and discuss. I don't know that I agree with you to be to be uh, fair, with all due respect. Uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that as somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat. Yeah. Not here, but, you know, other places. Uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. Ultimately, he did unleash the rioters at the Capitol. As to that, there's no doubt. Did you hear him casually admitting that he has planned coups before? Like it's nothing. This shows us the I'm superior than you behavior that we keep talking about, especially coming out of the U.S. And the West does this all the time and that's what we've been trying to call out time and time again as africans like they literally do whatever and they're not held to the same standard as what they preach to us like this man is admitting on tv on cnn i might add that he has orchestrated coups in other countries that are sovereign countries that have elected their own politicians that have elected their own leaders he's telling us that he was involved in that and so the lady makes one mistake nobody elected their leaders because part of these coup d'etats are fixing elections we pick their leaders we pick everyone you don't pick it we do and i've said that before and obviously whatever and now bolton is literally coming out validating everything that i have said this, this man, man was, was once the United States ambassador to the United Nations and also the United States National Security Advisor. If this is not receipt, I don't know what is. Like most of us are not shocked by this revelation. We're not surprised. Oh, my God, U.S. has been involved in coups. No, we're not surprised. But what's nice to have and what's a plus is to have a receipt that we can use against the West because they constantly deny it. And if you want to know more about what they are involved in and how they dismantle governments, you just go and read Confession of an Economic Hitman. It will tell you everything you need to know. So just to give you a context, in Africa, since 1950, we have seen 214 coup attempts and 108 of them failed. So who is the suspect? Who are we going to look at when coups are happening left and right? And also just to give you another fact, out of the 54 African countries, about 45 countries have faced coup at least once. I mean, <laughs> it's very clear um, who is pulling the strings, who is the puppeteer and who is dismantling countries from within. Key point from within. Ma, what would she say about Barack Hussein Obama, Obama's dad and Peter Strzok's daddy destroying Upper Volta and creating Burkina Faso? What about Iran? Let's talk about Sudan. Let's talk about, you know, how they're helping these Africans that are all needy and hungry. My ass. They're destroying them because they're creating the future that they want in their land. And people are starting to wake up. And right now, 
A lot of people are like, I'm ashamed to be American. We've been doing this to other nations. You didn't know. So there's nothing to be ashamed of. What you do know is you know the facts now, and this is how you rectify it. And this has been going on for close to a decade, this war within our borders between intelligence officials and people in the shadows like me that are like, yo, this is really fucked up because, you know, we can pray for what is coming not to affect us, but there won't be many of us on the other end. And what we need to do is maintain course. We are not in a biodome where we will be eradicated. Water is not a problem. <laughs> Still rains from the heavens. Let's just hope that it stops at some point. But listen to what she's saying. This is everywhere across the world. And this is why they had this campaign. If you notice, people, you need to flee America. You can come over here. Flee, flee. They're telling you because they know what's coming. <laughs> and they're putting earwigs everywhere. They're trying to confuse you because this is no longer viable for them. So they're in full panic swing. So with that being said... Thank you for the receipts that you have casually given us, John Bolton. We highly appreciate it because this is going to go in the archives. Some people might say, so what's the point? You have receipts on them. No, we're going to collect them. We're going to make sure that there's a whole book of them so that the next generation is not naive to what's going on in the world. And hopefully they can do better knowing what really is happening and knowing who not to trust. Anyways, fam, let me know down below what your thoughts are about this slip up. I am Ongil Zalalem. I'll see you on the next one. Bye. And so now, like I said, you can understand where they get upset. They have their own camps within their own, uh, you know, area. Now, I've talked to you about El Salvador and Nicaragua and funny that the people that were on the Zoom calls orchestrating the federal coup all work with Bolton. All of them deploy coup d'etats on other nations uh, for him. All of them. So when I tell you that this J6 was very well orchestrated and they actually use people on the right and they not only use people on the right, but they infiltrated the right. So any good ideas they had or any not so kosher ideas of stealing laptops and shit ideas they had. They were penetrated so they could thwart their efforts too. So there was a coup d'etat planned with some confusion that then in turn turned the coup d'etat and the confusion back onto President Trump. You see how that works? So they had their assets, right? The left had their assets where they were organized. The left already had started their federal coup. And then the right had some great idea to go steal laptops and shit because this is under. But they were already penetrated. So since they were already penetrated, the fake ass Lincoln Project assets and those that were close to Trump that flipped on him. And I think, oh, my gosh, I got some missing parts put together. And I can't believe I'm going to I'm not going to say this out loud. But someone who I knew was a little bit sketch only because of stuff. I was reluctant to think that they would have set up the president maybe later, but not early on. And now I'm thinking this whole Russia collusion thing was actually set up by the very people that were supposed to be helping the president. I'm not sure on that, but boy, that that hit me like a two by four between my eyes when that idea came in and I was kind of put at ease because I can't believe I said it to the people that I said it this morning. 
And they said, you know, that could be possible. And I'm like, look, I don't know. I'm just putting it out here because this is what the evidence is telling me. And they say we keep our options open. So I stick to it. Uh, Evidence will guide our way. Now, having said that evidence, the two coups, the original coup deployed by the Rhino, the establishments, GOP and DNC, of federal employees was orchestrated. And most of these people work with Bolton. Okay. Lisa Fithian deployed a lot of shit down in El Salvador and Nicaragua. I went through that on another show. You can look it up on Tori Said, where I talked about the crimes that Bolton did. It's very important that you listen to that show. Okay. It's important that you listen to the Bolton show. Now, um, and now he comes out and admits that, yeah, I've done coups a lot. No shit. I've helped in all of them. I was part of the electing the leader shit so we can get these coups going. I say it. People don't want to hear it. This is my redemption. Fuck you. You don't like it. Hey, you would have never known if I didn't open my mouth. Let's put it that way. You would have never known. You are lucky that there was someone like me taking fucking notes or else you would have never known. It would have just been a conspiracy buried under state secrets. That's if it still exists. Now, I've told you about clergy and other, huh? I don't know, peace institutes, Greenpeace. Take a look at this. It is reported, reported today, today from El Salvador that four Americans have been killed there. This was the first time that Americans seemed to have been singled out by a death squad. They were shot execution style, bullets to the back of the head. Later, their bodies were found in a shallow grave. Apparently victims of a terrorist attack. That was a wake-up call. There was a great outcry. But El Salvador continues to be plagued by human rights abuses. The kind of violence that turns the stomach. Of course, the families totally believed that the U.S. government would do whatever was necessary to bring those who had killed them to justice. I think after 30 years that it's more than enough time to make the truth known. There were people that were real, you know. They were funny. Maura loved a great Irish joke and an occasional Irish whiskey. Ida had the best and the driest sense of humor you can imagine. Mara Clark and Ida Ford were among a group of American nuns working in El Salvador. Their mission was to bring social justice by ministering to the poor, as Mara explained in an interview during a visit to the U.S. In my work, it has been very much trying to help people to realize their, their own dignity, to, to realize the great beauty that they have. But El Salvador was a country in growing crisis. Each day, El Salvador comes closer to civil war. Military repression of popular dissent had fueled a growing leftist insurgency. The U.S. backed the Salvadoran military in response, fearing the country would become the next communist domino to fall. Right-wing death squads further escalated the violence, hunting down even moderate leftists seeking political change. Death squads are believed to be responsible for more than half of the political murders committed Among those assassinated was peace advocate Archbishop Oscar Romero, a nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize. I believe they understood the danger of it. It wasn't as though they lived naively, but the violence was rampant and it was intended to create fear. In my estimation, there's a state of war. It's a civil war. And the people just feel that there is no defense 
There's no place to go. They were doing wonderful work. They were helping the poor people, helping the children. But in the eyes of the military, identification with the poor was the same as identification with revolution. Our people there are suffering tremendously right now. There's a great deal of fighting going on. I'm hoping very much to go back in December. On December 2nd, Mora and Ita flew into San Salvador's airport, where they were met by fellow churchwomen Jean Donovan and Dorothy Cazell. The following day, their friend, Peggy Healy, got a call. The priests had already checked everywhere. The Asuncion sisters had checked. We knew that they were missing. And so really that night, it was just waiting. They found their van that they were driving burned and by the side of the road. We knew something terrible had happened. Of course, you never want to believe that or think that it's possible. We got a call in our house in Montclair about 10 o'clock Wednesday night. Told me that Eater and three other nuns had disappeared. And she said that we should assume the worst. She told us that missionaries who disappear in El Salvador are usually found dead. It wasn't until December 4th we found out. I went to the scene. They were just disinterring the bodies. They were women that I had known. It was I who had to call our other sisters, and I had to tell them. It was clear that they had been raped. It was clear that they had been killed and thrown by the wayside. It was clear that there was tremendous foul play. I found the town clerk. He told me that they had heard the screams and the shots the night before, and that was the military who had done it. And he realized at that point that the Salvadoran military were out of control. I mean, they would kill anybody. A State Department official said that there is a strong emotional reaction to the murders in the United States, particularly in Catholic congregations. This country today announced it's suspending all economic and military aid to El Salvador. Up until this point, the Carter administration had been sending millions in aid, while also pressing the Salvadoran military to stem human rights abuses. Why is there so much violence in El Salvador? Perhaps violence is the only alternative to the subversives. Garcia would say things like, you have to respect our traditions. Which simply meant the Salvadoran military had a right to kill anybody they want. But Salvadoran officials assured the U.S. that the military had played no role in the church women's murder and promised a full investigation. At the State Department, diplomatic sources say they do not believe government forces in El Salvador killed those four American women. Within weeks, the pressure of a new leftist offensive caused the U.S. to restore Salvadoran military aid. And a new American administration pledged to do even more. 30 more advisors, along with 18 more helicopters, to counter what the U.S. claims is Soviet involvement with the guerrillas. Of course, all of the families believed that the U.S. government would do whatever was necessary to bring those who had killed them to justice. It just became increasingly clear over time that there were going to be a roadblock. Jean Kirkpatrick got up and said that these weren't just nuns. 
The nuns were clearly not just nuns. The nuns were also political activists. We had to be a little more clear-cut about this than we usually are. One, that was not true. And two, as if that would justify the killing of these women. The families were just outraged by it. And then Secretary of State Alexander Haig said that the women could have been killed running a roadblock. Perhaps the vehicle that the nuns were riding in uh, may have tried to uh, run a roadblock or may have accidentally been perceived to have been doing so, and there have been an exchange of fire. How the U.S. government handled this case was one of the gravest damages. The signal was not sent that you cannot do this. They were mostly concerned about waging the war against communism in Central America and persuading Congress to give them the money they needed to do that. El Salvador, for example, is nearer to Texas than Texas is to Massachusetts. Central America is simply too close and the strategic stakes are too high for us to ignore the danger of governments seizing power there with ideological and military ties to the Soviet Union. Six weeks after the murders, White says he was pressured by Secretary of State Haig to send a telegram stating that the Salvadoran government was making progress in its investigation. He refused. I said, well, Mr. Secretary, the Salvadoran military killed those women. And the idea that they're going to investigate in a serious way their own crimes is simply an illusion. White was shown the door. But evidence secretly gathered by the U.S. eventually led to the arrest of several low-level National Guardsmen. And a U.S. State Department investigation produced other disturbing news. For months, there was a cover-up. Military authorities transferred the killers to obstruct the investigation, switched rifles to make detection more difficult, destroyed evidence. It would take Salvadoran authorities a year to even arrest the right men. And then another two years, nine investigations, 200... Actually, that's bullshit. They just got some low-level people, spun a story, instead of saying, we successfully took over the El Salvadorian government and put in our own people, kind of like USAID was like, yeah, well, you're not getting any money until you vote the person that we say so. So Bolton made sure that the right person was put into office, and that's what Bush had done, and they put the right person in office, and when they eliminated everyone from the government to be replaced with people that the United States said so, a story came out that we solved it. But the truth is, they weren't just none. And the lady was right. They were just nuns. And they are just not priests. And they are just not students. Because I've played the roles of many. Huh? They're activists. Lisa Vithian was there too. You know, the one that was on the Zoom call talking about, you know, how amazing Arab Springs are. It's because of this global agenda. It's because of what they need. And you know what? It is actually biblical. Uh, you know, I am so glad that I use my little incognito TikTok. Because I've got TikTok woke like nobody's business. That's me working. But here is um, Bolton again. I want you to see this for a second. This is what I was told. And this is why I went along with things. But I took notes. Because I was trained differently. That Red Sparrow shit is bullshit. I didn't know what uh, the questions would be, but but the point is the the uh, the effort that some people have made uh, to portray Donald Trump as a as a as an evil genius 
just goes too far. He, he's he's obsessed with Donald Trump. He's he's not competent enough to pull off a coup. And I was just trying to say, you, you, in evaluating how we respond to what Trump did on January the sixth, you have to try and estimate what the danger is, what the threat was, and not overstate it. Because if you overstate mm-hmm. it, you're going to react in the wrong way. So I figured, uh, having having watched and advocated regime change in a lot of different countries. <laughs> Uh, maybe that would help put it in some perspective. Uh, it, it did. I it just the the, the knowledge of the, watching someone say, "Well, I've planned coups." As a matter of fact, not here, but um, you think about U.S. coups around the world: Iran, Guatemala, South Vietnam, Chile. That were led. Obviously, there was an there was a uh, attempt at regime change in Venezuela. There were other attempts at regime change. Yeah, pay attention to the 50s and the 70s. They're not talking about what we have been doing in other nations after that. It's just, yeah, in the olden times, you know. Bolton, though, is giving defense to President Trump, which is true. Bolton, though, knows very well that it was his people that did this. Bolton knows this. And he's saying Trump is not that fucking smart. He a coup is very intricate and it is. There's so many facades. You need to have your assets in there. You need to make sure a year, a year, two years in advance. I mean, remember Chris Stevens and how he was put in there. Uh, you know, when, 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 when we were going to bring him over to Benghazi, I had to actually create decoy ships to get him there a year before he became ambassador. These things are planned way in advance. You don't just go and wake up and say, all right, everybody, let's get on Zoom call. We're going to do a coup. You plan this shit. The sunrise movement has been going from before 2016 when they knew right before those elections when they knew trump was going to win they've always had these affinity groups and they've expanded them uh, in order to bring down any resistance from people like you just obey and put your mask on shut up abortions are a right nee, 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 nee. you know they create this and so bolton is right trump didn't have enough time to fucking plan a coup and he's right. And the fact that he came out and said it is like fantastic because that's evidence that he had no time to orchestrate it because you need a lot of preliminary work. For me, when we would target a nation, it would be like we need all I needed all the data, not the data of numbers and GDP and whatever. I needed boots on the ground data, meaning I had to go and roam the streets, bank like them, talk like them, eat like them, figure out where everyone is, have my counterparts do the same thing, come back, analyze the intelligence to find out how the fuck we're going to penetrate their culture and their inside. While at the other end, we're training people, either they be clergies, nurses, students, or fucking transfer students or professors to penetrate the country a couple of years before deployment. This isn't, you know, anything, right? This isn't just on the whim. And this coup that they planned against President Trump, they had already started planting seeds as a coup to the people, not President Trump, because they didn't think he would win. But something happened and they lost control over that. So that was all that energy was just redirected to the government. So while they were training young kids through our educational facility, facilities, peace institutes, all these rabid activist groups, the, the, the Birkenstock wearers that don't clip their toenails, the, the, the tree huggers, the, 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 the moms of holistic stuff and pushing all of this, right? And they just rallied them up with all this racist shit and all these names. There were people within the government doing their thing, military strategies, how to overthrow, how this, because the U.S. has now lost 
lost control over the depopulation agenda and it's being handed over to the UN who's at battle with China that's like fuck you I have 20% of the world population and all the other nations are going to work with me and Russia's like no over my dead body if we're going to die it's because of God not because we did it we we are resilient we are meant to make children and have children and spread on this earth we don't have to sequester it I'm just saying pointing some facts out they orchestrated the coup against our nation because they had a target it was very hard with just the people it would only have to they would only have to take out any rogue elements like myself any defectors like myself right because we can't have any borns out there right and that's the problem so as they were creating all of this that's how it went. That's why the, 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 the whole election theft was so well organized. They had your state legislators on board. I mean, in the state of Ohio, they actually banned in-person voting for the primary in 2020 because of the pandemic. They suspended your constitutional right and nobody said shit, right? Shit. They planned this well in advance. They had everything and they had infiltrators everywhere, you know, and, and, and so him coming out and saying, well, I planned a lot of them and they're not that simple. He's fucking right. They are not simple. You cannot penetrate that easily, but they had the infrastructure ready for something else. And all they needed was four years to pivot and have it ready. And this is what you are seeing now. The aftermath of a coup. And people refusing to accept the coup as fact. It didn't work. This kind of goes back to this issue of um, dealing with the Saudis. Is there a lack of seriousness and understanding by the American media of what really goes in to the dirtiness and the necessary dirtiness of American foreign policy? Well, I think so. I think a lot of snowflakes think that, uh, you know, it's all sweetness and light. And if we just negotiated more, the world would be a, a better place. Well, good luck with that. There are a lot of places where hard men are in power and they threaten the United States. Let's take Iran and North Korea pursuing their long term objective of, of deliverable nuclear weapons to stop them from getting that capability, to threaten our homeland, our innocent civilians, to stop them from threatening our allies, to stop them from selling that technology or nuclear weapons to terrorists or other rogue states uh, is a coup d'etat to overthrow those regimes, something we should be considering and planning for. Yes, indeed, to protect America and its allies. Thanks for, for watching. watching. Go to newsnationnow.com. Yeah, we should be planning coup d'etats so we can protect our allies. Wait till we start asking John Bolton questions about Khashoggi. See, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, listen to me on my show and they're like, oh, whatever, you know, nee, 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 nee. you wouldn't be saying that. No, yeah, I can because you don't know what I have. You have no idea what I have or what I represent or what I can do. So, uh, you know, it's kind of like a troll that uh, on 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 truth. Uh, you're just a troll. And I was like, girl, you haven't seen my troll skills. I don't even have to flex. See, the problem with corrupt individuals and people that are greedy as fuck, they think that everything is planned out. And, and, and you know, you're trolling or you're scheming. I don't have to scheme. I don't have to go to down that level. I actually... No, for a fact that God is taking care of all my enemies. And so he is. And John Bolton, he came out clean. This is the best defense for the president. He's like, dude, he didn't organize this. That's right, because it was his employees and his trainees that did. 
John Bolton, a former U.S. diplomat, diplomat and, and one-time one national security advisor to former President Donald Trump, on Tuesday told CNN he'd helped plan attempted coups in foreign countries. Bolton made the remarks in response to accusations that Trump pushed a multi-pronged effort to overturn the results of the 2020 U.S. election in a last-ditch and potentially illegal bid to remain in power. Asked about this allegation, the former Trump advisor suggested on Tuesday the 45th president was simply not competent enough to execute a, quote, carefully planned coup d'etat, adding, quote, as somebody who has helped plan coups d'etat, not here, but you know, other places, it takes a lot of work, and that's not what he did. Bolton served as Trump's national security advisor in 2019 when Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido called on that country's military to oust President Nicolas Maduro, claiming a recent election was illegitimate. Bolton supported Guaido. I can tell you there's a lot going on beneath the surface. The opposition is in constant contact with large numbers of uh, admirals and other supporters uh, within the Maduro administration. But Venezuela's military, stuck with Maduro, remained in power. Pressed on Tuesday by CNN anchor Jake Tapper to elaborate, Bolton said he would not get into specifics and did not mention Venezuela, but said, quote, it turned out not to be successful. Many foreign policy experts have over the years criticized Washington's history of interventions in foreign countries, but it is highly unusual for U.S. officials to openly acknowledge their role in stoking unrest in foreign countries. They do, though. If you go to the USAID website, go to every country and go to USAID. And you know what's really funny is that, you know, the Boko Haram escapists and stuff like that? Well, not trying to be funny, but it was Burkina Faso that played a role. Burkina Faso was where Ilhan Omar signed her divorce. Burkina Faso was actually manufactured and created in 1979 by Barack Hussein Obama's mother and Peter Strzok. See, people forget facts. They don't see because they've never played this level of games. There are very few people that are aware of these games. There are many people that have worked on doing all of this. Like we have the cyber teams, we have this team and that team, but there are very few people, and I'm one of them, that actually know the intricacies and the targets. So as far as Venezuela is concerned, that was the Soviets and the Chinese saying, fuck you, no one's taking 333 years of oil because that's what Venezuela has. And America's plan of creating the North American Union was very important to them because, you know, Paraguay, Uruguay, water, hello, North America is almost dry. And they're going to push that even harder so that people... People could be like, what do you mean you're not going to help us? Well, then we'll just invade. We need to survive. You'll be very surprised. Very surprised. Just how evil people can be for the sake of surviving. Because if you knew, for example, South America won't give us water and we're all dry and we're going to die and we have to rely on rain and it's all shit and we have water restrictions and we don't have food, we don't have farms and they're just letting us starve. How many of you, honestly, would be okay with invading a nation because they won't help you when people tell you that it's genocide because someone won't help you? You have to think about that. Think about it. And President Trump had the right idea. He was making borders to come up so people don't come in because of what's coming. We have more than enough technology where we can make water from the air if we put our money to it. We have more than enough technology to uh, farm easily because we have all the zones necessary to plant almost everything. We don't even need to import. And so again, 
people would not mind invading another country if it meant that they survive. So let's take a quick break before we um, uh, finish up here with uh, these terrorist things. Let me show you why you need to turn off the news. The news are telling you what is mainstream. Now I'm going to show you how I know where the weapons were going. I'm going to show you. Here's an article from uh, this day, clearly talking how President Muhammadu Buhari said, Nigeria is expecting to take delivery of military weapons and aircraft from Jordan, China, and the United States to reinvigorate its anti-terror war. And then the Boko Haram guys escape. And then they tell you, they tell you this. Uh, Oh, I didn't show it to you. Sorry. Here we go. Here's the article. There we go. Military weapons, aircraft from Jordan, because Jordan, uh, the king of Jordan is actually the interim because then they go on a, you know, from land. And uh, Jordan actually has some uh, easements with other nations that are hostile with each other. They're kind of like the Switzerland, I guess. Everybody loves um, King Abdullah, except for Pelosi, because he kicked her the fuck out. Um, And, you know, he has sesame. So you all talk about CERN, but you're not talking about sesame, which is the same thing as CERN, but on the African continent. Makes you wonder why in 2014 they created sesame in Africa. Oh, no, no reason. We just need two colliders. Right. We just need two of them because, you know, that's normal. Right. For experiments. We're all doing the same experiment, but we just need two of them. And so we'll create a new one in Jordan. Because, you know, the king is neutral as long as his kingdom reigns. He has no problem. But let's go to the news. The news are telling you. uh, Let me see. Hold on. Okay, so this is what the news are telling you. Let me just go and show you. So Al Jazeera is telling you, oh, you know, it's a Ukraine. Look at all the weird stories. Ukrainian cargo plane carrying weapons crashes in Greece, they tell you, right? It crashes in Greece. All eight crew members are killed. The plane carrying military goods en route from Serbia to Bangladesh crashes near Kavala. This is really, really weird because... Other people that are saying that it was carrying wasn't going to Bangladesh. It was going to Jordan. So they can't even keep their stories straight. They can't keep their stories straight. 
So the question you should ask yourself is, what's really going on? Why are they sending these weapons to Africa? It's because they're not going to tell you, and they'll never tell you, because you're not entitled to the real war. The war where the elephants fight, but the grass gets hurt. And then you have, you know, this statement. Hold on. Is it in English? It's not. So it just has music. So I'll read it to you. It says, Athens F-35 deal likely to upset Turkey that Athens, Greece is going to get F-35s. Really? Shut up. Nobody gives a shit, right? Don't worry. Ukrainian pilots are being trained and Biden is sending them F-15 and F-16 jets to Kiev to counter Putin's assault. Guys, do you remember? I did so many shows on what was going on. Putin already gave the SH-400s to Turkey that they bought. That's anti-missile defense. Four F-35s and F-15s and F-16s. Why were we giving them F-35s too? Oh, it's just normal, right? Just freaking normal, right? And Greece is so irate and, 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 and their shadows being hacked because they will not sit back on this because the Greeks won't allow it. When Turkey goes flashing out maps claiming that Greece's islands are Turkish. President Erdogan's far-right governing ally showing Greek islands as part of Turkey has reinforced Western support for Greece in its territorial dispute with Turkey. Greece has slammed the controversial map. Devlet Bocelli, the leader of the Nationalist Movement Party, Erdogan's far-right governing ally, displayed a map showing many of the Greek islands in the Aegean and Mediterranean, including Crete, as belonging to Turkey and draped in a Turkish flag at a party event. The map was titled Our National Oath and Seas. The name was a reference to a February 1920 declaration that lays claim to lands now belonging to Turkey's southern and western neighbors. Grey Wolves organization's head tweeted the photo with Bosley and the map, saying it was to show the national consciousness border of our islands where the glorious Turkish flag fluttered for hundreds of years but that were usurped by Greece. Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis has slammed a controversial map. He urged Erdogan to explain his stance on his junior coalition partner's latest antics. He said, Alpha fever dream of extremists or Turkey's official policy? Another provocation or the true goal? Take a good look at this map. Crete, Rhodes, Lesbos, Chaos, Samos all consumed by Turkey. President Erdogan must make his position clear on his junior coalition partner's latest antics. A U.S. State Department spokesman told reporters, the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Greece is not in question. Our position on this issue is clear. We urge our allies to avoid rhetoric and actions that could further escalate tensions. He also added that Washington continued to encourage NATO allies Greece and Turkey to work together to maintain peace and security in the region and to resolve disputes in a diplomatic manner. Furthermore, Ernst Reichel, Germany's ambassador to Athens, said via social media that any questioning of Greece's territorial integrity and sovereignty is unacceptable. Bocelli is one of the founders of the Grey Wolves, an ultra-nationalist and Islamist group that is considered an extreme organization across much of the world. The founder of their party is a colonel who was one of the responsible names for the 1960 military coup. The borders of modern Turkey were drawn after World War I in the 1923 Lausanne Treaty. Erdogan and the MHP have questioned the treaty's validity, throwing Turkey's commitment to its key aspects into some doubt. 
Turkey's questionable commitment to Greece's territorial integrity has caused consternation in the U.S. Congress and a pushback by some senators against a request by the Biden administration to allow the United States to sell the latest version of the F-16 fighter aircraft and modernization kits to its NATO ally. The U.S. House of Representatives Rules Committee voted to include an amendment in the National Defense Authorization Act for the 2023 fiscal year to prohibit the sale of F-16s or modernization kits to Turkey unless certain conditions are met. The amendment by Democrat Congressman Chris Pappas requires U.S. President Joe Biden to certify that such a transfer is in the national interest of the United States and requires concrete steps taken to ensure that such F-16s are not used by Turkey for repeated unauthorized territorial overflights of Greece. Additionally, former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert said, we never recognized the threats against Greece as legitimate, in spite of the very close relations that we wanted to build with Turkey, but we never, ever accepted, as was spelled out in the most explicit terms to the Turks, that we would never tolerate any threat to the integrity and the security of Greece and we had very good relations, commercial relations, diplomatic relations. Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis said Turkey's position that questions Greece's sovereignty over its Aegean islands is absurd, rendering any talks between the two countries difficult. Additionally, Greek politicians reacted to Turkish interior minister who said Greece is supporting terrorists. Mitsotakis said, Turkey's objections, as they were phrased in the latest letters to the United Nations, are absolutely absurd as they raise questions about Greece's sovereignty over its islands. We cannot have any discussion over the absurd. Athens has said that Turkey's remarks about it arming the islands are unfounded. Both countries have sent letters to the United Nations outlining their rival positions on airspace and the islands. Mitsotakis said the two leaders would inevitably meet at some point and they should not stop talking to each other. We need to meet each other and we need to discuss. We need to be able to agree that we disagree, but we need to agree on the framework for, for solving, solving our differences. Which will never be solved because that is the problem nobody can solve. Today, what I've showed you is the intricacies of lies. I told you about Africa and how important it is. And just now I was on Telegram where someone was like, holy shit, Hunter Biden was striking a deal with Boko Haram. No shit. That's why they got caught with the bribes in Chad and they got Dr. Ho for that shit. Wait till you found out how Dr. Ho, Hunter Biden's assistant, assisted in giving all that cash to Iran. Like I've been saying this and whatever anybody wants to say and claim, bitch, you don't know half the shit I know. And you can sit there on your pedestal right now claiming that you're important or you're this or you're that, but without knowledge, you fail. And with half-baked knowledge, it's an even bigger failure. The bottom line is this has been happening for very, very long. You wouldn't even know if truth hit you in the face. You wouldn't see a coup d'etat because you don't even know how intricate they are. And I'm not speaking to one person directly. This is generalized. The president of the United States, President Donald J. Trump, knew all of this. And the fact that he's in a point of weakness is fantastic right now because it allows to show where everyone sits. Allows to show where everyone sits. And even though John Bolton is happy that Trump is out of the picture, he also knows 
Now, it was someone actually found the episode. It was uh, from before the elections about Bolton, El Salvador plot USA episode that I did. So someone found it. It was October 30th of 2020. It's really important that you revisit all these things because as you hear it, you get confused because there's so much information. It's coming in like damn fucking fire hose. And you're like, who do I listen to? Who do I trust? It's not about trusting anybody. It's about looking at the facts. The facts. Here are some facts. Let's. Is someone in my computer? Someone's got to be in my computer. Because there's no way that this is gone. Give me a second. (sighs) The fact that I have to be on open networks for this shit. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? Let me see if it'll help if I take it. Redo it. Are you freaking kidding me? (sighs) And I was like, I should print that before it goes away. And it, there it is. Perfect. I want to immortalize it. These people are doing things right in your face. Okay. Right in your face. They have sign-up sheets on Google so they can take part in communications. Bike squad. You know, it's so dumb. It's so out there. And then you have all these people telling you how they're the news. They're not. They're literally sabotaging everything there is to be done to save our nation. They're going in there pretending they're doing things and they're not. Some of them are knowingly and willingly doing it. But you want to hear about Burkina Faso? You want to see how coups work? Well, we just started working on Nigeria. You know, that's what they did. And Hunter Biden has a deal with Boko Haram. And just check this out. We got Burkina Faso in the mix. Let me see where he starts talking about it. This is one of my favorite, um, you know, channels to watch um, for African news. Only because, you know, they're so freaking unfettered. Let me see. Um let me see, is this... Okay, here's where we start. New era will obviously take some time. Angola is the latest nation to fall into that line. I will tell you what I mean shortly. This is Wild of Africa. Americans Walker, welcome to the program. Let's start with what's happening in Africa. Suspected Boko Haram militants using guns and explosives blasted their way into a prison near Nigeria's capital, fleeing dozens of their jailed comrades and hundreds of other inmates. The brazen attack on the outskirts of Abuja is a startling illustration of Nigeria's security challenges. Several inmates were recaptured after the incident. The head of Burkina Faso's ruling junta, Paul Henry Sandaogo Damiba, speaking alongside ex-president Blaise Compaore and Jean-Baptiste, has called for social cohesion to face rebel violence plaguing the nation. Compaore's return home for the first time in eight years to attend the summit has drawn widespread criticism. In April, he was assassinated in absentia to life in prison for his role in the assassination of his predecessor, Thomas Sankara. 
The Kenyan government. So he he assassinated someone who was his predecessor, but now he's sitting at the table all nicely and they're having a conversation. This is where the pedal goes to the metal. They're trying to cut deals for their own people. And what they don't get is that they're going to be steamrolled because they don't have the technology. People still think we don't have the quantum Internet. That's bullshit. And it's not a complicated algorithm. They're all going to Antarctica. They're all reinforcing. They're all doing this and they're activating various affinity groups. What are you scared of? Are you scared of mice? We're going to have a mice pandemic. What are we scared of? We're scared that we don't have water. We don't have food. Yep. We've got a famine and a water and water shortage. But you know what? They're out of water. All we need is a little bit of rain. Let's make sure it doesn't last for 40 days, though. Hmm. Because, see, that's the problem. They're working off the premise that nobody can help. But, you know, best miracles are done with truth. And truth is light. And there we go. And it will be coming forward. This is the T. You just got John Bolton to admit on global television that he has been part of orchestrating coups, just like the one in Albania, and they got caught. And this is why Russia banned USAID. Everyone's an affinity group. They're no grassroots. You think BLM is grassroots? Bullshit. Paid structure leadership. Done. You know, and we should keep saying, you know, that BLM actually helps fund killing Africans. So there you go. That's how much black lives matter. Yes, they do to the left. They matter and they need to eradicate them because there are too many of them on the continent. They want a little bit outside the teeth on that one, but I have to, mm, it's going to be a doozy. Um, this weekend, it'll be a doozy. So we'll see. In other words, Benny Thompson is uh, pop positive for COVID, uh, considering that we have another hearing and there will be a top ranking official, according to CNN, that will be testifying. CNN, a new witness for the, for the January 6th committee. CNN has learned that former Trump National Security Council official Matthew Pottinger will testify publicly at the next committee hearing in prime time on Thursday. Pottinger resigned in the immediate aftermath of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. He will appear alongside former Trump White House aide Sarah Matthews. Let's go first this morning to CNN's senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polance. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. And of course, let's start with Matthew Pottinger and these details, because obviously he was a pretty critical figure in the West Wing. He may not be this household name, but he is certainly someone who had quite a bit of influence inside the West Wing. That's right. So Pottinger was the deputy national security advisor. That's a really high ranking position. He is going to be alongside uh, another person who was pretty high up in the White House, the former White House deputy press secretary, Sarah Matthews. They're go both going to be live witnesses that we have been able to confirm for Thursday's primetime hearing. And as you guys mentioned, um, it's very notable. Both of these people resigned in the immediate aftermath of January 6th. So they're not likely to be uh, very friendly witnesses to Donald Trump or what happened there on January 6th. They are likely to be able to, they won't be mincing words, we don't expect, whenever they're testifying. But we do know from the committee members who've been previewing this hearing over the weekend in recent days that they want to take us inside the White House minute by minute 
187 minutes in total where Donald Trump was doing nothing. They are going to hope to illustrate that, not just with these live witnesses, but with witnesses that they have videotaped. We've been seeing all of these depositions. There are lots of people that were in the White House that day that have sat for testimony. So all of that is going to come together in this primetime hearing. And, you know, I was in court yesterday for Bannon, uh, Bannon's trial jury selection, and I was shocked to see how many potential jurors had really watched closely to Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, knew her name. She, too, was not uh, a household name before she testified. So we're going to see if the committee can recreate um, that sort of impact that they had with Hutchinson with this hearing on Thursday. With us now, Daniel Goldman. He served as lead majority counsel in the first impeachment inquiry against Donald Trump and as lead counsel to House managers. Uh, he is also running for Congress in the Democratic primary for New York's 10th congressional district. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us. Matthew Pottinger, Sarah Matthews. These are staffers who are known within the halls of the West Wing, but not maybe to the rest of the country. What role will they play, do you think, Thursday night? Well, I think it's very interesting that we're now at the eighth hearing and we've seen excerpts from so many depositions, but not from these two. It is clear that the committee has been saving these two witnesses for the last hearing, which is going to dive into Trump's dereliction of duty on the day of January 6th when he did nothing to stop the rioters, even though he was being requested from all angles, his own team, the Mike Pence, uh, Congress, the Republican congresspersons. So we are going to understand uh, in great detail through these two witnesses what Trump was doing that day. Um, and also, John, as you'll remember, there's a, a suspicious gap in White House records as to what calls were coming in and out for Donald Trump for about six hours that conveniently overlapped with the riot. So I, I suspect we are going to learn more from these two witnesses about who Trump was speaking to and what he was doing that day. And Sarah Matthews, Daniel, was a deputy to Kayleigh McEnany. She obviously was in the West Wing, saw what was happening that day. But Matthew Pottinger, just for people at home who don't aren't familiar with his name, he was the deputy national security advisor. It's a huge job inside the White House. He was one of the few people who resigned in protest that day because he saw what had happened. And he said it was very clear after Trump had attacked Pence that he, he couldn't work there anymore. And he was someone who had a very high ranking position, felt the need to resign over what happened. And so when he goes before the committee publicly, he is someone who is in the room for a lot of meetings, maybe not a lot of the legal meetings about what was happening with the effort to overturn the election. But what can he reveal to the committee about you know, the inner workings of the West Wing on that day, given, of course, his, his key role? The National Security Council, as you know, Caitlin, is the body that oversees all of the intelligence and largely all of the foreign policy uh, within the White House. And the deputy national security advisor is the one who everything runs through the deputy going up to the president. So I would suspect that Pottinger would know about 
what the intelligence was about the expectations for what was going to occur on January 6th. He will be able to say what Donald Trump in, received in briefings from the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, that Pottinger probably was in the room for. And he will be able to say what the communications occurred uh, within the executive branch, which would include the Department of Defense or the Department of Justice. So the question is, did the information that was given to Chris Miller get to President Trump? Did it get to O'Brien? I trust O'Brien. I like O'Brien. He's a smart man. He's a very methodical man. Here's what you need to understand. Someone actually put this picture, and I can't believe that I haven't pointed that out before. Jesus himself said, I don't need you to lead my sheep. I need you to feed them. And by feeding them, it's knowledge. And I want you to understand that something everyone feels like they're on the edge of their seat, both left and right. The lefties can't stand the right. The lefties can't stand the left. The right can't stand the right. The right can't stand the left. They're all standing in the middle independently. And they're all waiting for something. Embrace that. Embrace that. Because if you choose truth, it gives you serenity. If you choose transparency, it shows you where you stand. You're no longer on a floor with no, you know, with no base. You are literally standing firm. And the way to do that is to embrace that and trust your gut. There is nothing more than that. This, what you'll see coming from Pottinger, will be one of the biggest blows that their narrative gets, no matter what is said. Biggest blows. No matter what is said, I want you to remember that. The biggest blows are coming right now. Because him going on the record claiming that the president didn't have the intelligence that was provided to him means that we know exactly who mitigated it. And boy, I want my gut to be wrong. Well, my evidence, my gut is feeling sick. It's the evidence that's pissing me off. But one thing that I didn't see anybody talk about is all this mess that's going on in Africa. Did you see how they were citing Department of Justice in the United States documents? Yeah, they were referring to drugs, but think about that for a second. And remember, Steve, when he combs his hair, sounds fantabulous. And he said the same thing. We need to destroy the GOP. We need to destroy the construct. Hmm, funny how the people that are actually in the know know what needs to be done and those that are not will fail. On this and stand by. Now in a stunning turnaround, turnaround, the diehard Trump ally and political operative is offering to testify to the January 6th committee. Offer not accepted because it wasn't a full offer. And we're back with former federal prosecutor John Flannery covering what is this first day of the criminal trial of Mr. Bannon. And I emphasize that in the past, he has found occasion to cooperate. He has found occasion to evade. It makes a big difference if you know the incumbent president. Right. Um, 
it appears the jig is up. What is today about? Uh, what it's about is we're piercing that veil of these powerful, omnipotent people who thought they could do anything in their arrogance. And he's already Aww, on notice. Deflection, deflection, deflection. Here's what happened just a few hours ago. Because that's deflection. Justice correspondent Pete Williams is joining Pete, us. What, Pete, what we know. Well, there's been a hiccup this morning. This was supposed to be the day to complete jury selection, but they haven't really gotten around to that yet. And right now, the the uh, the hearing or the trial is in recess while the judge considers a request from Bannon's lawyers to delay the trial another month. Now, this is the reason they've made this request. All along, the judge has said that Steve Bannon cannot argue to the jury, cannot use as one of his defenses that he was relying on uh, an assertion of executive privilege by President Trump uh, and also that uh, his lawyer had urged him not to respond to the subpoena, that he is a former government official. He didn't need to. Well, the judge has said that's off limits. But today, in discussing whether the jury can hear a letter from Benny Thompson, who's the chairman of the January 6th committee, in which Thompson says, you know, all these things that Bannon has raised, you can't argue this, Thompson says in the letter. Uh, the government wants that letter introduced. Bannon's lawyer said, no, it's hearsay. But the judge said, well, no, actually, it can be uh, introduced as evidence. All Steve Bannon has to do is put down in writing uh, that he was relying on Trump executive privilege. That was, That's known as a proffer. And the defense lawyers have said, what? Wait a minute. You told us earlier we could never argue that to the jury. What's the deal? If now we can, that's that's a major change here. We're not prepared for that. That changes our whole approach to the trial. We want it delayed at least a month. So the judge has recessed the hearing to consider that motion. So everything is on hold for now. Uh, we're waiting to hear until Judge Carl Nichols comes back into court to decide whether, in fact, to proceed uh, or whether, in fact, to delay things another month. Oh, they might pop the indictment a little bit sooner than that, so it'll be obsolete. But basically, the judge was making evidence as to, uh, you know, um, making evidence as to why they should admit that letter. So they need to change all the premise, which is weird. And just before I forget, I found the clip that tells you that these planes were going to Jordan. They were Jordan bound. I wanted to show it to you because you heard Bangladesh. Jordan bound Ukrainian cargo plane carrying weapons crashes in Greece. This is how they obfuscate what they're really doing. The media is not real. Your people on TV are not real. They all go by a script. They are are not telling you the truth and it's all about clicks and money and they hate that they hate it and you know uh, I, I i find it quite pleasant sometimes when i engage with trolls because they think that they're important i mean even a lion takes time to swat flies right but if you notice they all self-destruct all of them all of them people make choices Arrogant people make choices. E egotistical narcissists make choices on the whim. They're not calculated. And this is where it's going to get busty because there are a lot of people that are like, holy shit, 
we can actually fix this. And other people are like, what's the point? They have our schools, they have our banks, they have our Senate, they have our Democrat, the, 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 they have our Congress, they have the executive office, they have our state legislators, they have our state governors, they have our state AGs. Like, how are we going to fight this? Mm. <sighs> Miracles happen. When you least expect it, miracles happen. So let's immortalize this. This, this is, is the, the moment, moment a cargo, the cargo plane, plane crashed in northern Greece, killing all eight people on board. The aircraft had taken off from Serbia and was heading to Bangladesh before crashing near the Kavala International Airport. It's headed to Bangladesh. But what does the title say? Jordan-bound Ukrainian cargo plane carrying weapons crashes in Greece. It was bound to go to Jordan, but the final destination, they say, is Bangladesh. Mm, Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? See, this is how they hide things, steganography, right in your face, under your nose, right? And they expect everyone to bend the knee and understand the power that they yield. Again, using a very remedial and pedestrian example, okay? Pedestrian example, my example. I was booted off the ballot and I was told there's a sore loser clause, but I had planned for that, but God planned for that too. Where are all the other people that were knocked off the ballots? Are they fighting? What about all the people with the affidavits? Anybody else fighting? Hmm? This is a real question. Who else is fighting when they fail? When you fail, that's when you fight. Huh? And every single failure is one breath closer to success. So when everything looks like it's against you, fear not. Because he, he, he is with you. He is with you every step of the way. Every single step of the way. And when darkness comes... And the world is dry and everyone will be like, oh my gosh, climate refugees, like I told you is happening. You're going to see that miracles happen. So you just have to trust in him because miracles happen. I know I've seen them. And for those of you that may or may not have seen them, I can tell you, this is my experience. They're real. And if you haven't realized it, we're already in this revolution. With the institutions, sick illusion, no, it won't be televised. Welcome to the revolution. We will not comply with the institutions, sick illusion, no, it won't be televised. Welcome to the revolution. The revolution won't be televised. Government been telling lies.